0: Hello, folks, and welcome back to Bowman and the BFG talking Bond and books, looking down the literary gun barrel of Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. Uh, BFG, are you out there? Here I am. How are you doing?
1: I'm not doing too bad. It's uh, minus t- 29 degrees here in Ottawa. But I'm inside warm for the meanwhile until I have to go to work later. (laughs) So I'm just bundled up here, uh, ready to dive into a session and imagine the tropical climes that Bond will be in and maybe that will make me uh, approach the cold
0: uh, much uh, with more enthusiasm later on. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Uh, One thing's for sure, we've got sunshine here today and it is the first time we've had sunshine here in... Well, second time this week, uh, probably the first proper stretch of sunshine since October. At least we have sun. I suppose that's something. It is something, yeah. Anyway, Josh, we're here today to talk about Live and Let Die, the second Bond novel that Fleming wrote, and uh, it's been over a month. We're trying to do this every four or five weeks, come back and discuss a new title. Um, Yeah, I mean, how do you feel about Live and Let Die, nutshell?
1: I... I guess a nutshell would be I enjoyed it more than Casino Royale.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I found that it was actually uh, a very quick read in most cases. I was a bit busy this week, but I was able to get through it in a couple of days. You know, like uh, if, if if I wasn't busy at all, I would have probably got through it within. I would say within within an evening if I really wanted to.
0: Yeah, see, so but... that's the difference between you and me, man. Like I've always admired that about you, your ability to. Uh, not necessarily your appetite, although it's a very healthy appetite for reading, but man, your ability to fly through books. Like, I, I just, I've never had that, um, that speed. And now that I'm, a, I mean, teaching a course, I, Jesus, I, I, it takes me forever to get through a book now, but um, because everything I do, unfortunately, um, I can't switch off that part of my brain that wants to analyze and uh, deconstruct, you know what I mean? yeah i i I
1: know i I know what you mean i usually when when I do like when I'm really into something I go right into intensely yeah. and then it's followed by uh analysis and analysis and ana- analysis which leads to real read uh, sorry to rereads it leads to uh, looking up other elements about it and basically every going down to every little bit of minutia about that text whether it's a movie or a book mm. and to the to the point of where it's just I'm just mentally, I get mentally exhausted by by the end of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, I guess I'm not. I'm not trying to say I can't read for fun and leisure. Of course I can. I, I consider this a, a lot of fun. But it I just mean that that part of my brain that is thinking about the language and really picking things apart the way I would if I'm reading a bunch of essays or reading a book for teaching or instruction. Like it, it it's tough to silence that. Even if you're reading something quick and hard boiled, you know. I, I I suppose in in in, 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 that, in that sort of
1: way. I think with certain books, you can find the subtext easily, and 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 you can incorporate that with it you know, with, with within how good the but depending upon how good the writing is. Yeah. And I just found uh, this in Fleming's writing. I find is that he's very simplistic but descriptive at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of a great attention to detail, but there's also kind of like a flourish and uh, to what he does in his simplicity. And I just find and and some of the the the, the you know, like he doesn't use huge paragraphs to describe things, you know, like a Tom Clancy kind of okay. espionage writer would or a Robert L- Llewellyn type of writer would. But he t- to me, what he does best is uh, he can make he can make you vi- visualize cinematically almost uh, what a certain moment looks like that, you, you know, um, what a certain uh, story, a moment in the story um, is what, what type of moment of the story that he's trying to convey to you. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I just find, in terms of turning on the imagination, um, Fleming is really good at
0: at doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well. Live and Let Die. You say you enjoyed it a little more than Casino Royale. I've got similar feelings about the text as well. Um, I've been really looking forward to this discussion. I finished the book a little bit before you did, just because I paced my reading over a, a longer period of time. I think, given the work I had to do at school, but right. um, yeah, I'm- I was also reading another book at the time
1: as well. Before, yeah. I, so I was kind of like, I got my like two. Uh, so that that's the main reason why I got to the point where I was just like, well, I'm gonna I. I because I guess I was just uh, busy and and whatnot, that I just decided to put the other book down. I got to the halfway point, and so I'll use that as kind of that part of the book done, and then I'll just go back to to, to that book after this one is done, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and it's a good it's good that you can do that. I mean, I'm juggling three books right now. I'm reading a couple of books at school while I get the you know my students to read, and I'm reading another one here at, at the house, and of course I'm doing this Bond series with you, so. Anyway, all of this just to say that I'm really looking forward to the chat. I like live and let die. I think there's tons of interesting things in here that we're going to flesh out over the next yes. hour and hour and a half. And uh, generally, w- you did a good job of introducing Fleming last ser- uh, Sorry, last episode, our um, inaugural episode. In, I think that we can bypass the Fleming introduction, but keep all of that information, you know, his relationship with his mother, his feelings of uh, isolation and outsidership, keep those things kind of bubbling away on the back burner because we might end up talking about them later today.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I think that that plays a part in in, in, um, in in his work for sure.
0: Yeah. So, well, hey, 1954 is the year that Live and Let Die was released and it was the first of three books that um, he had published and was publishing under the uh, Jonathan Cape contract that was brought after the success of Casino Royale. That's correct. And um, basically, it was the 5th of April when Cape published Live and Let Die. And as with Casino Royale, uh, Fleming designed the cover. And I know that's not something that we talked about last episode, but uh, both original covers of the hardback editions are quite interesting. I mean, can you visualize those in your head? The Casino Royale one, I can't quite recall. I've seen various different covers
1: of that, but I did look up the, the original cover of Live and Let Die because I I've recall seeing some morsel of information about Fleming designing the cover. And if you look at the cover, it's basically very title-centric. Uh, there's not much flourish around that. But if you look at the t- the cover, the words Live and Let Die um, within the, the block letters... You can see, I, I assume, what are feathers, yeah, and yeah. these feathers are obviously connoting
0: the voodoo influence in the storyline. That's right. Yeah, um, it's an interesting design, and I like I like that Fleming, you know, had uh, a, an artistic interest in doing that. Um, the book had an initial run of 7,500 copies, I think it was, um, and after those sold out, there was an additional 2,000 released. It was banned in Ireland in uh, May of 1954, just a month after it was published elsewhere in the UK. I I, I read that, and I I never was able to figure out why it was banned. No, it's interesting. I I looked at three different sources about this. Wikipedia was one, and then I had two others. One one was a journal, and the other one was a site now online. I can't remember. And neither one of those um, sources indicated the precise reason why the um, Irish Publication Board decided to ban it. But I presume, I mean, I can only presume, it has something to do with the issues of race or the kind of prejudicial prose that kind of flows through the text. Is it possible that um, given the, I guess
1: we'll we'll go into this in detail, but I was thinking about the whole uh, Marxist uh, attachment to groups like the NAACP and whatnot, and uh, that Fleming was trying to suggest, or not suggest, but... um, because it was an element where there were, there were people like the Black Panthers, for example. Um, they were all like these civil rights groups, and some of them were very extreme, and they had Marxist sympathies, communist sympathies, I, yeah. I, I should say. And Fleming goes into that in detail. I mean, that's the whole background of the, Mr. Biggs' organization. And I was just wondering if for some reason there was a strong... Uh, in the 50s, I don't know how strong Sinn Féin's influence was in, in Ireland, in the, in the Republic but is it possible that a it could have been political um, against fleming himself and and what the what the book was writing about suggesting that people like the marginalization, the racism, could it also be just for morality based on the fact the first book got through the censors and the second one didn't? Maybe. I no yeah. Idea.
0: I was thinking that too, but you might be onto something there with Shinfei. I hadn't even thought about that uh, quite ignorantly on my part, actually. I hadn't even thought about that. I don't know how um, polarized they were at that time, but it, it does beg the question. And we're going to talk about this, um, the NCAAP and whatnot, when, when we get into our discussion. So, Let's just um talk a little more about the publication and how it was received as a text and then we'll uh we'll move into some context and I'll I'll chip in here and get you to do the same about 1954 cuz man there's a lot going on in the world in 1954. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a cauldron, that's for sure. It is. Right, so anyway, yeah, okay, so Live and Let Die is banned in Ireland a month after it was released in the rest of the UK. Um, it did, however, this move, it did help boost sales in other areas, and I guess that's not surprising. You know, it's like telling the kid not to do something. What's the kid going to want to go do, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So you tell someone that, oh, you shouldn't read this, it's not good for you, then they're going to go read it. And uh, it did, I mean, I don't think this was majorly uh, significant skyrocketing sales, but it did draw some international attention to the, to the book, and because – Although today we're looking back on Fleming and we're thinking about his life and his influence on the series of films and Bond is is massive, he wasn't then. He was still just a writer and uh, like many many people, a successful post war citizen, and uh, he just happened to be turning his journalistic skills into fiction. But he still wasn't established yet. No, that, that no, definitely not. I mean, he had a
1: breakthrough with Casino Royale that mm-hmm. that I think kind of like um, broke through. You know basically um, a kind of a do or die kind of market especially at that time period mm-hmm. and he he got, he got his foot in the door so this was so in, in, I think it's just like you know like a, it's like a um, if you look at today if you look at you know like when they make um, films or TV shows for example, the first season has to has to be the one that grabs everyone's attention right That's right but yeah. the second season has an extra bit of honest on top of it is because it has to be as good as the first season. And also has to bring new things, to, to new elements, to the narrative, I guess, or the overall quality of, I guess, of, of, a, fran- of, of a
0: of of a, of a franchise in, uh, in in its infancy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, you are right. And. It did come very quickly after Casino Royale, and uh, that that you know there might be something to play in there. But the books feel very very different to me. Anyway, nonetheless, they 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 do yes, and nonetheless yes, sir. Please continue. In 1955, United States published it. Uh, like with Casino Royale, a year later it was published in America. Um, the only change to the text, which was really surprising to me, I've discovered, was uh, uh, the the change in the tap in the chapter title, um, <laughs> Heaven to Seventh Avenue. And I guess we should say here. Uh, before any- I know
1: that chapter's name,
0: that's yeah. for sure. Before we offend anybody, uh, ourselves included, we're going to be using some of the language that Fleming uses in context of his of his book here. Uh, a lot of it's racially charged, and we're just going to get that out there right to start. That uh, that's a big, big part of uh, *Live and Let Die*, and I think we would do the experience of talking about the book a bit of an injustice if we tried to shy away from that.
1: I, I agree, you know, like there are certain limits of how you can push people's tastes. And uh, mm-hmm. this book was written at a time where the, the, the kind of the thinking that we have today, much more open-minded, uh, you know, more accepting, in most cases anyways, of, most uh, cases. of different ethnicities and societies and, and, and whatnot, and the more of the global village that, the village that we've become. If this book had been published today the way that it was, Fleming would have been hung, drawn, and
0: quartered. Yeah, absolutely, on the internet before he was even charged for anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He would have suffered his, uh, so, his social his social demise online before he was uh, called up for anything by the cops. Uh, yes. Right. Well, uh, in uh, 1957, Pan Paperbacks published *Live and Let Die*, and they sold 50,000 copies in the first year. And so much like with *Casino Royale*. Um, The success of Fleming is written in paperback profit. You remember when we talked about Casino Royale, you said something uh, about Fleming as a journalist and his his personal letter from uh, Stalin.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, Uh, I thought I went Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I I I was going to say –
1: did you did you want me to bring that up again and
0: no, go back no. to detail? Or? No, not at all. I was just going to say I thought it was interesting what you said about that particular letter because he sent a letter to Winston Churchill with a personal copy of this book. And in that letter, he, Fleming, just referred to it as an unashamed thriller whose only merit is that it makes no demand on the reader. Humility. Well, humility, but he's still writing the prime minister with a copy, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's almost like it's a uh, it's it's uh, oxymoron if you think about it because here he is trying to be humble and sending a, co- a copy of his book. I guess it's 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 interesting. But i wondering too, though, he sent a message to Winston Churchill, but I'm sure he must have encountered Winston Churchill during the war because he worked for naval intelligence and and was part of major operations. Yeah. So while they say like in some blurb of of trivium that he sent a letter uh, with the copy of the book to Churchill. Who doesn't know that he doesn't have a a minor kind of acquaintancy with uh, Churchill in the first place?
0: Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, I'm looking at this through the gaze of, you know, an hourglass in history and flying back through. You're not really looking at it in proper context. As you say, he was involved in a lot of naval military intelligence. So, yeah, he might have even been on speaking or social terms with this prime minister as much as you can be.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I I would definitely say that um, if, if he went to England or whatever in his in his time period, I'm sure he I'm sure he's been to some function with Winston Churchill and had a glass of sherry with them or something like that. You know, guessing what he might have drank. Right. He seems actually more kind of like a a brandy kind of guy to me.
0: Yeah, well, um,
1: find out. I kind of you? wondered about if how the you know how the portrayal of M and how like he uh-huh. described who who I don't know. We'll go into this, but. How he wrote right to M, it just reminds me of Churchill for some reason. So yeah. I always wondered if M was kind of based slightly
0: off Churchill, you know? It is. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Um, you know, the the movies have some claim to that as well, because there was a likeness between Churchill and Bernard Lee. I, I, I can definitely, I can see that for sure. But one
1: thing that you want to point out about the films, and we should do this as seldom as possible, is... Uh, is to compare the, the books to the film because we, we really don't want to... Because it's just not helpful in terms of analyzing these novels at the time. Yeah. But I will say is that um, I find... M is almost like a father surrogate father figure for bond in the book so far from what I can see Mm -hmm. because bond really um, appreciates him and he values him. And he even mentioned to a point that he loved that voice, you know? Yeah, that's right. He does say that. Whereas there's a bit much more of a employer employee kind of aspect with bond and uh, M in the films, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a bit of information on the publication. Um, in terms of 1954, the social and political context of the time, uh, this is the world that Fleming was writing in. And we also have to keep in mind the very detailed and effective introductory points that you gave last episode about him as a young man who was very worldly well-traveled, uh, very analytical mind, very strategic mind, very adventurous mind. Although he never had the opportunity as a soldier, perhaps to execute or to act on that that pulse of adventure that he had coursing through his body. All Behind of- the scenes, that's right. Right, not- and all of these things, you know, filter into the man as a writer. And in 1954, um, I know you're going to say a, a few words about Smersh in a few minutes, but. In March of that year, the United States announces a hydrogen bomb test in Bikini Atoll in the Pacific Ocean. And in September, the USSR tests a thermonuclear bomb. And the Cold War is very much ramped up at this point. Yes. Boy Scouts of America desegregate for the first time on the basis of race. And it's also in America, 1954, that schools were finally ordered to integrate racially. Yes. And that that to me is is quite startling and so when you're looking at some of the well today's standard slurs and the racial um well I don't like nomenclature but it certainly is kind of that way there is a scientific edge to some of what um Fleming writes you got to remember that this is still a world where in the United States at least uh, blacks and whites hispanics and Indian descent I mean nobody is mixing right
1: there is no there's segregate there's there's not like i guess uh, what's the word, legal segregation exactly. or or, or institu- institutionalized segregation, but there's social
0: segregation, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're still one year away from Rosa Parks refusing to move seats on that bus in Birmingham. And, you know, I know this is a silly comparison, but it got me thinking. We're still almost 15, I think it's 14 years away from that first interracial kiss on television that happened in Star Trek. So, racially, we've got a long way to go before, I think were comfortable having, or before Fleming and his audience, maybe, um, are comfortable having um, strong, truly strong, noble, and I don't mean noble in that sort of Uncle Tom scenario. I mean noble, like um, deserving, dignified uh, African American characters. Right. No. None of that post-colonial, pitiable attachment, uh, mm-hmm. or
1: or or what's the word. Affection that you kind of see, I think, in, in, in writers like Fleming, you know? Yeah. Where they, he talks about, you know, um, the characters, for example, talking about how, you know, well, you know, these Negroes you know, they they seem to be doing quite well. They're producing a lot of geniuses now and yeah. scientists and all this sort of thing. And it seems like very positive what they're saying. At the time, it probably was, Yeah. you know, but at the same time to us, it's like, wow, this is so condescending, you
0: yeah. know? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean, Fleming's, there, there's a passage, Josh, just like that in the book. I don't recall it by rote, but it's very similar to that talking about how the world is changing and these Negroes, as you say, are soon going to be industrial leaders and they're soon going to be this and they're soon going to be that. And, you know, and Fleming, probably, as he writes, is trying to think positively about the future. But even that type of consideration is, yeah, it's tough to stomach when you hear that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Especially in this age of, you know, Oscar's not white hashtag, you know what I mean? So yeah. hey. whereas whereas in like um, any kind of assessment of any sort of racism or or assertion of any kind of it or or possibility of it you know is to be stamped out completely despite you know that there might be logic involved about certain things or mm-hmm. or there may not be logic involved not making any, any judgment on any present scenarios all i'm saying is that i think as i mentioned to you at one point um we're in the age of the social justice warrior now where all the wrongdoings of everyone is called out you know on the internet or whatever so on a social media and this type of behavior in a liberal society where, you know, where, where pansexualism and all this sort of thing, um, cultural global village, as I was saying earlier is embraced, um, this sort of behavior and this kind of mindset is just antiquated and, uh, dangerous almost in Mm -hmm. many many ways and has
0: to be stamped out. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't know how you felt about reading, and let die. And I know we'll talk about this when we share our angles at the end, but you know, there's I can't shake the feeling that when I'm reading this, I'm I'm kind of judging myself as well because it is easy to get caught and kind of tripped up in some of what Fleming writes and kind of and I don't know if it's it's quite as quite as distinct as uh, Orientalism, but there is this there is this kind of uh, lure to to view the other in that sort of way, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And you notice that like if
1: you look at a modern book nowadays where people just say where if they're a person of color or is inter- it might be hinted that of their color or their skin, but they're always referred to as people mm. or as this criminal or this thug. Yeah. Never in, in, a, in, in a fight scene, does, does do we do, in, in most cases when we see like any kind of conflict between bond and one of Mr. Big's men or Mr. Big himself is never ever said that this person or the henchman or this or, or whatever. Um, it always mentions the ethnicity. It says the, the, you know, the big Negro or, you know, like there's always, as you said, um, an assertion of the other um, in, 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 in the text to describe. So we see a segregation within the society, of the, in the within the book world of that society of the Negro
0: as separate from the white man. Yeah, most, most definitely. Uh, uh-huh. Well, I, I don't know how you felt about it, but I, I don't know if I should feel guilty for it. Um, probably. I didn't write the book. I I no, I, I don't no. feel guilty oh, no. at all about it. But... I don't feel I don't feel guilty for 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 the book. Uh, but as I'm reading it, and I, I mean, obviously, it smacks of racial prejudice of the time. But for me, that doesn't ruin the reading experience as fiction. And I'm I feel like I should be mad at myself for that because I I know that it's offensive. It does offend me on a moral level, but. The story is engaging and yeah exactly i mean
1: i'm very i'm very good at assessing as separating uh the text that i'm looking at from i guess what i perceive as the feelings of others the the the, the social influences around me that make me feel that particular way mm. and i, I and, and i just don't consider those things most of the time when i when i Read something because you. I think a you have to consider the time that it was written.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Uh, B yeah. then you got to kind of take a look at it at the author's intentions as well. I I, I sort of think.
0: Yes, you're and, right. And the the word racist as we use it and throw it around today simply wasn't. It didn't have the same edge as a definition today. Right. In I mean fact. Fleming
1: wasn't writing this with like a white hooded uh, no. with a pointed white white no. hood on his head. He
0: wasn't. But you do bring you do bring your prejudice and your and your inherited prejudices everywhere you go and it you know it, it, it is part of this book it's part of his upbringing it's part of his eaten education it's part of his stiff off, upper lip it is part of his conditioning and it's impossible I think to truly to truly uh, um, you know circumcise yourself out of it yeah at, at
1: his time period in his mindset you
0: know the life that he led there's no
1: way that he could have wrote this differently I don't think anyone in his position uh, being just like him could have wrote this unless they were like Uh, a supporter of the NACCP or something, or some communist Marxist group, if you were part of the white majority, Christian, um, uh, democratic majority, I mean, regardless of living in England or in in North America, you're you're, you're going to write in a certain way based on your experiences in your life. And there's nothing really you can change or do about that. Mm -hmm. And society changes. I mean, that's the whole thing. Society has, has changed. So what you got to really look at, I think, is authorial intent here. Yeah. And I think there are just some slip-ups in his character that today might have be might be criticized, but back then I just don't think that, it, given the way that he was raised and grown up, there's no way you can't really blame him for something that was integral to his well-being. You can criticize it nowadays that attitude as as antiquated, but I don't think it takes away from his him as an author or anything like that. No. And I don't think that what he did was. Yeah, being racially prejudiced, like everyone was, I don't think it's some kind of crime that should hang over his neck. Uh, you, you know, that he should hang around his neck like a like a placard indicating racist, 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 or something. I, I just don't feel I just don't feel that way about it, and I don't feel guilty when I when when, when I read the book either. That you know that I'm that I, I'm enjoying it because again, I'm separating myself from the. Uh, I guess, the socio-political context.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, I, I mean, I didn't want to share exactly the episode or the moment from the text that, or the moments from the text that kind of made me feel this way, but there were a couple specific ones. For example, because I, I don't feel guilty reading the book. I, I'm not trying to generalize the experience that way, but I guess what I mean is, you know, there's, there's this bit in the book, right, where he and uh, – where Bond and Leiter are, are in Harlem and this they're on, yeah, they're,
1: they're crawl, they're their, yeah, they're doing their pub crawl basically. Yeah,
0: they're doing their pub crawl and uh, then the, the dancer comes on, right, that, uh, that beautiful black woman who strips down naked and she's basically gyrating everywhere. And I mean that's a really horny scene and it's, del- it's deliberately sexualized and although she's being objectified to within an inch of her goddamn life, I'm finding myself really interested and excited by that passage. Yes, I'm a red-blooded male, but there's something more about it. There is something there is something other about
1: that that makes yes. me... Yes, I think to me in that sequence, it was just describing, I guess, all of the people dancing around and gyrating and all this sort of thing, and <laughs> yeah. how he talks about like flared nostrils and everything. It
0: almost goes to an animalistic <laughs> kind of perspective. It does. It's totally animalistic, and that's, that's <laughs> tough to reconcile, you know? But it could be argued that in many
1: ways he was describing the uh, the whole mosh pit aspect going yeah, on there.
0: okay, fine, fine. But, but, but
1: listen, though, listen, the mosh pit aspect, comparing it, I think, maybe to the voodoo rituals that Bond was reading about. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right I think he was
1: I think he was making some connection between that sort of tribal aspect uh, in, in, in the club that Mr. Big has brought to yeah. New York that he's taken from the the voodoo Haitian culture, you know?
0: Yeah, Yeah, you are right. And there is certainly a a, a definite... uh, But of course, that's
1: racist in in, in itself, I suppose. It is. And we we can
0: talk about that because uh, voodoo is something that I've had quite an interest in myself, not as a practitioner, but as an anthropology reader. And uh, Wade Davis's work in Haiti has just been phenomenal to read, The Serpent and the Rainbow, his work on that subject as a Harvard scientist uh, and ethnographer. It was really interesting, and I I brought some of that into my reading of this. And, I, I'm you know, i got to give credit where credit is due. At the time, one of Fleming's pals, um, per, uh, Patrick Lee Fairmore, who wrote this book, The Traveler's Tree, um, that becomes a big source of knowledge for Bond, and it's kind of a nice way of, of Bond learning about voodoo uh, and also Fleming tipping his hat to his pal. You know, I, I do like that, but... I'm gonna yep. let you, I'm gonna let you talk about the voodoo link in your in your plot summary. I'll just go, want to finish off this little intro about context and prejudice by um, citing a couple things. Uh, Jeremy Black, a cultural historian, um, states that Em and Bond offer their views on the ethnicity of crime, views that reflected ignorance, the inherited racialist prejudices of London clubland, and he also points out that the frequency of uh, Bond's references and his willingness to offer racial stereotypes was typical of many writers like Fleming at that time. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we're not going to excuse anything that we talk about, but we have to recognize it in the context of its publication and with all of that historical implication of Fleming's upra- raise, or sorry his upbringing and his uh, military service and his um, white privileged youth and all the rest of it. So we'll, we'll put all that together. Culturally, Live and let die seems to tap into the fear that a lot of Americans in the early 50s were having um, about the organizing and the, or I guess the organization of black power structures. You know, I know you're going to talk about the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, but anything that challenged white superiority, especially in America, was a cause for great, great fear. And I think that it was believed, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I think it was believed that Fleming was kind of sympathetic to. The school of belief that the, um, um, uh, yeah, the Association for Advancement of Colored People was a communist front. I mean, I got that note written here. And that, that would make it interesting comparing Mr. Big's relationship with Smirsch, because it would have been wholly believable to readers of his time that a big black gang leader would also be a communist
1: and not uh, yes uh, uh, yeah basically again the other the enemy the red menace you know like yeah, that's basically yeah. what he's alluding to in that regard mm. but i keep i almost think it's almost like he's alluding to it ironically almost like he's just saying is because he does give big a backstory you know about being this uh working you know a haitian um you know who fought for the british in world war ii and the allies and he did many kind of covert operations and then eventually you know his intellectuality. Uh, I think what is what is what is what, what lured him over to Marxism and 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 joining Russia and becoming part of Smirsch. So I think is if within the character, what Mr. Big did was he made sense is that he used voodoo culture, uh, you know, to uh, put it still fear in, 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 into his minions and he was able to use
0: that um, to finance Smirsch in his operations. Right. Well, look, um, I want you to fly straight into this plot summary. You've basically brought it up. Um, right there, so... Yeah, I, I kind of did, but I just I couldn't really avoid it. But One thing I think that um, I
1: was going to mention, too, is how also there's... A, I think there's also a bit of a critical... a critique of America, I think, in Fleming's Live and Let Die, in, in my opinion. Don't you find that he was very critical of American society in this book? I certainly think he was critical of the retirement age, that's for sure. <laughs> that's definitely sure. Yeah, but it's funny, too, because it's almost like he's just saying... Well, Jamaica is better to retire to than Florida is, because yeah. Florida is like, is I guess, was, was the ideal of the American corporate um, industrial engine breaking down its people so that they just go to this little suburb or whatever to live out the rest of their small existence, you know? Yeah. And then, but, you know, he's, he decides to, you know, to go to Jamaica and have a cottage on an island and stuff like that. So I guess that's much more appropriate i suppose i, I don't so. know i just found and how he described you know um going through the states on the silver phantom you know going down from new york philadelphia through through uh virginia georgia all the way to florida it just seemed to me that um i think he was kind of really showing that yeah St. Petersburg, say petersburg this retirement community is sun-soaked and really you know harmless and all this kind of stuff but really i think he was pointing point that america has this gleam to this gleam to it but underneath, you know, it's
0: it's it's it's, it's a, there's rot, you know what i mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's there's a rotten core there at a lot of what he insists or sorry, uh, implies about America. Okay. I got some notes here. I'm eager to get into them. I know you got notes as well. Give us a couple minutes on live and let die, Josh. <laughs>
1: So picking up uh, where Casino Royale left off, where we have Bond's uh, declaration that he's going to bring down um, Smirsh, you know, for A, um, making British, uh, making make him look like a fool and kind of and probably in denial about his uh, feelings towards Vesper and what happened to her and all this sort of stuff. We basically have this, um, I guess, war cry of Bond, this mission where he is now going to take down Smirsh and he's going to involve himself 100% in his work and get things done. So Live and Let Die kind of picks up with him, going on these operations and whatnot. And so, what, what the basic of the story, the basis of the story is that <clears throat> these these uh, these doubloons, these coins, belonging to um, Captain Sir Henry Morgan, uh, Bloody Morgan, one of the most famous pirates of the of the era, who was a real person, by the way. They, these coins are found. Um, and uh and bring, is brought to the, the U.S. and um, <clears throat> England's attention that these coins are being used to finance <clears throat> smirsh, uh, Russian operations uh, in America. And the person who's doing this is this uh, Mr. Big, this uh, Haitian national who's living in the United States, uh, who has his background of working for 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 Allied intelligence World War II, and eventually lending his intellectualism and and his uh, uh, skills to Russia and, and now is an agent of Smirsch. And uh, so we have him in, in New York running his operations uh, almost all through the eastern C- seaboard, um, a criminal organization where he's known as Mr. Big. We have this really tall, tall black man with a football head and very kind of moronic, kind of ogreish depiction that Fleming gives him. Um, I'm going to get into him, I think, a little bit more when we do the adversaries and allies part. Sure. Um, about about Mr. Big, but basically Mr. Big is you is um, Bond is sent to go after um, these coins are being used to finance operations for Schmirsch in, in America. So there's a joint um, there, there there's a joint um, partnership with uh, the uh, with MI6 and the CIA to um, find out the source of these coins and to stop the operations in uh, in America to finance Schmirsch. And um, of course, they're also working with the FBI as well, who's handling the legal aspect, because A, um, it's on American soil, and B, the um, uh, Mr. Big is an American citizen as well, so there's all that to be involved as well, and and the big kind of the big mob bust as well, you know. And also too, at the time, FBI was part of the, of, the, of the Treasury. Was this was when they were deep into the House of Un-American uh, activities with McCarthyism. So you know, so their FBI also has their hand in that as well. And they're very powerful at this time period. You think nowadays, you know, when they think of the CIA, they're pretty um, uh, the go-to form of um, political power, you know, in in foreign policy in 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 the world today. But back then, the FBI had a lot better, had a lot stronger clout and reach because they would, because they were basically, they were kind of like McCarthy's and I guess that time period, secret police keeping America safe, you know, on its home yeah, soil.
0: Um, I, I find it interesting, you know, these, um, uh, just how, how significant McCarthyism was, not just in this, but I mean, you, you look at any cultural production from the fifties. And I mean, you can find some link to it, can't you?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I should not, and I should also mention too, McCarthy is McCarthy was, what was a player in all that, but I guess it's more important too, is that this was also the FBI was at its strongest because this was the, this was under the, the, um, the aegis of Hoover at the hmm. time. Hoover was Jager Hoover. Um, the founder of the, the, the founder and director of the FBI, he was in charge at this time period, um, running the whole, country so McCarthy might, might, might have been you know the media figurehead of all this but Hoover was really there behind the scenes working that great that great that great agenda you know yeah yeah sorry right um right so yeah. Bond, but anyway, Bond is after Mr. Big yeah Bond is after Mr. Big basically so um this brings us to Harlem where Bond encounters Mr. Big after going on, on a night tour with uh Felix Leiter who we kind of learned is a bit of a jazz geek and uh he is, yeah. I love, yeah. I love that pub crawl. By the way, it's awesome. Yeah, that, that was that, that was also one of one of my favorite passages in the story, actually.
0: Yeah.
1: M- minus, of course, it's racial connotations, um, yeah. racist connotations. But um, anyways, so this leads um, uh, Bond to Mr. Big, and uh, Mr. Big decides to spare their lives because he's bored, basically. <laughs> Yeah, Not that's about that it. Yeah. That's, that's about it, really. He's bored, and uh, he, you know, he doesn't, and he doesn't want to have the wrong people bringing the wrong attention to certain things, right, of of his operations or whatever. So he lets them go and decides it. But I guess he, 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 um, he doesn't know about Bond's mission statement to bring down Smirnoff and his tenacity. He just thought he was just another bureaucrat, just doing his job, you know, do, you know, with, with, within the great machine. But Bond uh, proves to proves to be res, resilient and even. And so as this point here is that during this interrogation of Bond in Harlem, in the secret nightclub, uh, underneath the uh, nightclub, uh, the Boneyard, where Bond first meets Solitaire. And Solitaire is a Haitian woman of aristocratic descent, is what they're s- s- suggesting. Probably a former French plantation owner who lost her family and eventually had to end up in penury, and where he discovered her on, st- on stage, where Mr.
0: Big discovered her on stage in Port-au-Prince, basically being a psychic. Um, yeah it's tough it, it doesn't make a lot of sense whether it's like a circus act or whether it's something a little bit more uh, uh, spiritual but it's never really clarified but she is a clairvoyant at least in his eyes and that's why he hangs yes. on to her and around and also the people
1: around her too I mean that's the whole thing is that she was people were scared of her back in Port-au-Prince because of her, mm-hmm. of, of, her of, of her abilities but she's also you know a very a very beautiful wo- woman at the same time and and uh, it's, it's Mr. Big's intention to marry her, but he wants to use her at the same time because he believes that uh, by keeping her intact, so to speak, uh, pure, uh, he'll be able to use her powers to his to to to, to his ability. Yeah. And uh, and of course, it's just this moment there where Solitaire, I guess, finds the Solitaire, which is she, I, her last name is Mazel is Simone Mazel, isn't it? Or yeah, it's something like that. I've got to scribble down on one of these pages. But yeah. Anyways. Th- th- that's her real that that's her real name. We never really know her name from, in, the, in the in the film version, but um, that is her her real name. And uh, this I guess she, it's all this time she's been looking for her way out. And when she sees Bond, encounters him for the first time, this is her way out. And so she agrees. Uh, she basically uses Bond once he gets away uh, as a way to get out. So they take the Silver Phantom train um, all the way over. All the way to Saint Petersburg to trace the flow of the coins, right? Mm-hmm. And this leads them to a warehouse in Florida, um, where 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 staying at a at a resort, um, hotel s- uh, establishment. Uh, Solitaire is kidnapped while while Lighter and Bond go out uh, to investigate a warehouse that a warehouse, and it is in this, it is it and is in that moment where they return from the warehouse after being kind of brushed off by the creep that runs it the so-called robber, uh, who is like a, a minion of... um, He's cool, though. I do like him. Yeah, he's definitely one of... Yeah, he's definitely a, 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 a memorable henchman, but that's for sure. I keep wondering if that main antagonist, this kind of henchman that you see in Live and Let Die, the one that was like with the sideburns and he oh, was yeah. always yeah. trying to get at Bond
0: all the time in the boat chase, I wonder if he was supposed to be the robber... Uh, maybe I, I found the the robber in the book to be far more ominous, though. Like he shoots pelicans for fun. Like he does a lot of crazy shit. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a very much a cruel, cruel individual
1: who seems to get off at what he does too. You know. Yeah. And anyway, he, sorry. He right. Lo- um, all these. And, and he loves his together. aquatic life too. He loves his aquatic life. Yeah. So, anyways, so when they return to the hotel, they find out that that uh, Solitaire has been kidnapped through, the, through 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 Mr. Big's network, and um, so. They have to. So, Lighter himself decides to investigate the warehouse. And of course, when Bond goes out on an errand and then returns back, he finds a package waiting for him on the couch in the hotel room. And of course, it's Felix Lighter. And this, of course, um, if anyone has seen any of the Bond films, you will, we would of course remember the scene in *License to Kill* uh, where Bond finds Felix Lighter on on the couch. The older Felix Lighter, in this case, on the couch. So. Uh, this was definitely a, um, in, in, in *License to Kill, it was a callback to, 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 to this original scene in the novels. Uh, in fact, a lot of the plot elements of Live and Let Die, I guess we'll go at that in the narrative, have been spread across the Bond films, haven't uh, they?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Anyways, um, going back to um, the storyline, so basically it's turned out that Felix was basically fed to a shark. And going back to the warehouse, Bond not only discovers. Um, what happened to Felix in through there, but also how they're smuggling the uh, drugs in, in, within the sand of the fish tanks of dangerous tropical fish, and so the these doubloons are seized in the warehouse and um, and traced back to um, to the to the island in uh, off Jamaica, and. Um, I, I know it was called Shark Bay, but I can't. The name of the island is just, is just Surprise I, I Island. Surprise Island. Thank you. Surprise Island. Surprise Island off Jamaica, um, which apparently was not the original, uh, the, the actual location of the wreck of Morgan's ship or whatever, but um, and, and and of the treasure hoard. But apparently, uh, but for the book, for the, for the for I guess for narrative purposes, Fleming decided to use this this fictional island, Surprise Island. And this, is, of course, leads Bond to Surprise Island, where he, uh, after navigating a uh, a barrier reef to get to uh, Mr. Big's yacht, uh, we have the famous keel hauling sequence where Bond and Solitaire are are supposedly supposed to be dragged to death uh, in the coral reefs, uh, and then of course eaten, and then of course bit by bit torn apart by the fish and the sharks, the barracuda as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we end up with essentially um, Bond. Um, er, who had placed a limpet mine er, earlier, um, miraculously, um, him and Solitaire miraculously um, becoming unscathed because uh, the 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 um the yacht commanded by Mr. Big, um, helmed by Mr. Big, uh, detonates before they reach the reef, and of course we have this really kind of gothic horror m- moment where we where Bond watches. Um, all of the the, survivor, the survivors of the second tour, the uh, yacht owned by Mr. Big, uh, eaten alive by the Barracuda and the sharks, including yeah, Mr. Big pretty himself.
0: Pretty wild scene.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a great moment of kind of, as I said, gothic horror in that particular way. And then, of course, so this ends the, so this ends the Russian, the uh, Mr. Big's operation in the United States and dealt Delta Blow. And then Bond, of course, uh, is in convalescence after his very very strenuous couple of weeks uh oh, he gets and, a massive
0: uh, he gets a massive chunk of his shoulder ripped out by a oh yeah his jet.
1: shoulder ripped out uh and a wound on his on, 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 on you know like he can't use his arm hardly at all um torn apart uh by a little bit you know their legs torn apart by the wreath a little bit as well i mean it was definitely a an ordeal for him both physically and mentally yeah. as we get you know when he had that moment where after it's all over and quarrel's coming to find them. Oh, I, I forgot to mention Quarrel as well. Uh, Quarrel is the Cayman Islander that Strangways who is the Jamaican head of the MI6 Jamaican head inter- and introduces to Bond and who's kind of like this guide bet- um, This guide who um, shows Bond around the coral reef and around Surprise Bay and he's the one that trains him in scooby diving so that he can go and make that run to the coral reef and take out um, M- Mr. Big and his yacht.
0: Yeah, Quarrel's a great character um, but he... He's, another another he's, controversial yeah, element.
1: Yeah, very much
0: because he's drawn in the same sort of shades and with the same sort of etchings as an Uncle Tom, isn't he? Very much so. Very much so. As, as
1: I think, what the Fleming says it best when he says, "I think he said uh, uh, a Scottish laird and his master. It's kind of like the unspoken authority, mm. uh, and, and at the same time, appreciation and uh, obeisance."
0: Yeah, that's. Yeah. um
1: it's like you know, it's like his. Uh, it's Rob Crusoe and Friday, you know, like
0: it's yeah, very much so. Or uh, what's his name? Um, oh no, forget it. I'm screwing that up. I was thinking Treasure Island with the guy that's on the island, but he was, he's just a castaway. Forget it.
1: <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I would just want to end of course. Um, so this basically is the culmination of the narrative. Uh, and by the way, we learned that Lighter did survive his injuries. Unfortunately, he's a bit maimed, uh, losing part of his leg and his arm. Um, but um in the end bond and solitaire are safe and while bond is still convalescing you know he's got uh, he's completed the mission and he's won the girl so on onto on the next thing life will bring to him or you know the next yeah. bit, of, bit of excitement yeah well done uh, i could have done better but uh well luckily
0: you're not being graded
1: yes luckily i'm not being graded thank you teacher
0: Okay, buddy. Well, uh, let's start talking then about this book and in detail, moving through some of the chapters, some of the sections, some of the excerpts, and uh, a lot of the action. Um, you notice something, dude, about Live and Let Die, like Casino Royale. It's, it doesn't immediately start off this way, but both novels open with this kind of uh, explosion that's meant to send a message.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's
0: true. You know, Bond gets uh, a package in his hotel room and uh, the way Fleming describes this hotel room in New York, by the way, it's massive. Like it's got its own, like uh, you know, it's its own. It's obviously a suite, right? But it's got yes. its own entrance hall and its own. Well, I Is guess. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's showing how often I go to these types of places. I guess. But,
1: I guess, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to identify with some of the yeah. um, the trendy, you know, <laughs> globe hopping that Bond did. That's for sure.
0: Well, one of the reasons why he doesn't get injured by this uh, explosive package is because it happens to detonate in the um, in this big area, right? Right. And um, I'm trying to find the section here at the beginning. Sorry, I'm flying ahead a little bit. But uh, basically, he finds himself in New York when the story opens. And like Casino Royale, it opens almost in exactly the same way of how he's observing his environment you know taking in all the details the first time he's yes. looking at a casino and this time he's in a he's in a cab or a car that's been sent for him at the airport I,
1: I think it begins with him arriving at the airport and then yeah which is kind of you know that classic kind of old bond old bond movie montage of the plane arriving at the airport um you you, you know and then him and him waiting in customs to, 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 to you know to, to go through and then there's a chauffeur waiting for him uh, and is, is it the, is it the, is it the right person picking him up? Like it's that same kind of scene, you know?
0: Yeah, it is. And it's in this first chapter that we get the first, um, we, we get the first race card played. Uh, anyway, he's, he's concerned about the documents that he needed to send or carry with him for the FBI and the U S health service and all this stuff. And, uh, Fleming writes in his case, it was only a boring routine, but he disliked the idea of his dossier being in the possession of any foreign power. Anonymity was the chief tool of his trade. Every threat of his real identity that went on record in any file diminished his value and ultimately was a threat to his life. Here in America, where they all knew about him, he felt like a Negro whose shadow had been stolen by the witch doctor.
1: <laughs> Lost his powers, eh?
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that's how he chooses metaphorically to articulate the fact that he uh, his, his guard is down, so to speak
1: it's almost too. it's like it's almost too. it's almost to bring up the guard you know of people who are about to read this book going
0: yeah so get ready for some
1: of the context uh, some some controversial uh, passages in this book <laughs> yeah totally and you know it's almost the, like
0: a disclaimer almost if you think about it it kind of is like a disclaimer yeah and the opening um, the opening chapter in Casino Royale and the opening chapter in *Live and Let Die* are very similar. It's almost like bon, uh, Fleming wants to remind the reader at the very beginning that he's a secret agent and he's taking in, uh, he's taking in all the details. And I also think this is good proof or evidence of how Bond, as a literary character, was not an established household name yet. Fleming still needs to remind anybody who doesn't know about Casino Royale who Bond, who Bond is. is. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and, and, and what he does, yeah. yeah. And so you've got the same sort of uh, the same sort of um, uh, little extract here, uh, all the small fleeting impressions that were as important to his trade as our broken bark and bent twigs to the trapper in the jungle. That kind of reminds <laughs> kind of reminds us of Casino Royale, where he's saying that he's not ashamed of doing these booby trap and um, uh, what like recording device searches around his hotel room, because the most important thing for him as a secret agent is to check his territory, right? Absolutely. So, survey your yeah, know your in, in, envi- environment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, we've got uh, yeah, and again, you know, he, he's very observant of his environment. Before he even reaches in his hotel room, he notices, or before he gets into his hotel, he um, he notices that there's somebody watching him. Uh, this this woman, uh, driving a car. It was a smart, decisive bit of driving, but what startled Bond was that it had been a negress at the wheel, a fine-looking negress in, the, in a black chauffeur's <laughs> uniform. It just means black girl, right? Black woman. Exactly. It feels really ugly to me, that word. Yeah, it's
1: definitely something you wouldn't use nowadays. You got any, you got any feelings about the first couple chapters? Um, well, I think it's like you said. It's very much like Casino Royale, where we have the establishing chapter who Bond is, what he does— Then it goes in and it kind of puts you right in media res into a situation that he's in. So you're automatically kind of intrigued by what's going on. Right. And then, of course, you have the next chapter, which is usually like the flashback to M giving him the
0: assignment or something like that. And then going back to, to, to the narrative proper in the third chapter. That's right. The second chapter interview with M is a great chapter. And this is one of those times where you feel like. Fleming's own experience in working in these offices and designing these plans and reading these files and coming up with these strategies—that he writes office very well. Do you find that?
1: Oh yeah, the administrative bureaucratic yeah. aspect yeah. Uh, is definitely one of his strengths, and you can really believe that these people like people like M and Money Penny. You can and you know that was his name Damon, the Canadian guy there. That's right. Uh, right. The, the, and also, I like how he kind of demonstrated that there are not just English people who work for the for the for MI six; there's also Canadians because they're part of the Commonwealth as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I found that kind of uh, um, d- detail interesting.
0: Mm. Well, you know, a, as a Canadian. I uh, I mean, after Casino Royale, which was in the summer, um, M sent Bond on leave, and now we're back in January, and so he's fully recovered from all of the ball bashing that uh, Le chief put on him and he's basically taking himself back into, with Chapter 2, back into M's office to find out who this guy, Mr. Big, is and where these doubloons are coming from, and he's going to use this as his chance. And M promised him he would give him a chance to get back at Smirch. That's right. And so that's Chapter 2. So Chapter 1, New York. Chapter 2 flies back in the flashback, like you said, to how he got the case, and um, I'm not going to go through these chapters one by one. Don't worry. I'm simply making the case that this novel starts very similarly to Casino Royale because the the character isn't world-known yet, and there are still people picking this book up on bookshelves wondering who the hell is this guy, you know? Right. Anyway, um, it's when he's in New York and he starts talking to Felix that they decide to do a little bit of reconnaissance. They're going to go into Harlem. And I don't know if you want to talk about this, but it's a dangerous environment for... Um, not just white people at this time but it's a dangerous environment for um well guys law enforcement uh, authority already... yeah kind what... of but I, w- I was thinking within the context of the story i mean it's mr big's neighborhood right yeah absolutely and
1: and as we established you know in the chapters where he, people are following him from the airport and, and you know and, and seeing people like watching him like we know that mr big's network is is very large and he basically uses his uh, the b- the belief that you know that he is the zombie of Baron Samaday mm-hmm. to put instill fear into his minions and so his minions are spread out wide and they're his eyes and ears.
0: That's right. I'm just reading here. Mr. Big is probably the most powerful negro criminal in the world. He is the head of the black the black widow voodoo cult and believed by that cult to be the Baron Samaday himself. So that's kind of what M. Oh, sorry, uh, lighter. Says to... Oh, no, M. That's what M tells him uh, in the uh, the dossier he hands over. That's right, and with with, with, with included with the the uh, readings of the um, from um,
1: about about voodoo culture as well.
0: Yeah, um, and I find that I, I kind of like the way M just gives that to him, as if he says, "I don't really care about these details, but you might find this interesting." <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: I think he probably just knows what Bond likes and what he'd be interested in and, and useful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well. Okay, so Lighter and uh, Bond decide to head up to Harlem, and it's it's in this sojourn, it's during this evening um, out together where they share drinks and good good times, and you can see the friendship there. There is a camaraderie here, and I really like the way it's drawn up in this book. It's a good and uh, believable, I think, believable extension from where the characters came in uh, Casino Royale, and I like the way that. Felix Leiter fills in some gaps about uh, Mr. Big, what the Americans know about him, and we're getting in this chapter I think the description of the first real extravagant Bond villain. If the films are to ape this idea later on, another decade or so, then it it's kind of starts here with this book, doesn't it? I, I agree, because we have
1: a very the very bland Le l- Chiffre, you know, yeah. in, in Casino Royale, and then you know, they all of a sudden introduce Mr. Big, who is the first kind of like eccentric sort of um, disfigured, very interesting, colorful—no
0: mm-hmm. pun intended—villain. Yeah, he he had no known vices except for women, who he consumed in quantities. He didn't drink or smoke. His only Achilles heel appeared to be a chronic heart disease, which had in recent years imparted a grayish tinge to his skin. The rumor started he was the zombie or living corpse of Baron Samadhi, the dreaded prince of darkness, and he fostered the story so that now it was accepted through all the lower strata of the Negro world. As a result, he commanded real fear, strongly substantiated by the immediate and often mysterious deaths of anyone who crossed or disobeyed his orders. And so that mysterious element of, um, you know, a big monster demon type uh, behemoth behind this uh business is well established and really it, it's a perfect cover absolutely uh, Noah is, uh, yeah, i know
1: yeah i found him mr big a much more credible villain a bit more multifaceted than um les was mm-hmm. but um again though i think there was a bit more I think there was something about him that was a bit missing. Like he was a huge, tall black guy and he had interesting past and, and whatnot. And very, he was very formidable figure. I kind of picture him almost like, almost like a Michael Clark Duncan kind of personality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not like the
0: Yafet Koto in the film.
1: Well, I think Yafet Koto was a bit more, I think, I think Koto had the, the sophistication of, of
0: the character, but I think he was missing something intimidating in my opinion. Hmm. Well, regardless, um, I think it's also important if we're comparing these adversaries, Lashif and Mr. Big. Lashif was a desperate man who was kind um, of—I wouldn't say he was at the the nadir of his uh, career, but certainly it wasn't a high point. Whereas Mr. Big is a very is very comfortable and very successful when this book comes in. Yes, that that's definitely true. Like Lashif was on the end of his of his tether, whereas. Mr.
1: Big is at the top of his game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Bond, uh, you know, he carries himself through Harlem with, um, and and through New York, really, with pretty good swagger. He's obviously over the injuries from Casino Royale. Uh, Bond walked over to the window, pulled back the curtains. His room faced north towards Harlem. Bond gazed for a moment towards the northern horizon, where another man would be in his bedroom asleep, or perhaps awake and thinking conceivably of him, Bond, whom he had seen with Dexter on the steps of the hotel. Bond looked at the beautiful day and smiled. No man, not even Mr. Big, would have liked the expression on his face. I like that swagger.
1: Hmm. Absolutely. It's very really like very really a devil may care. Um, I am who I am, and uh, no one's going to stop me.
0: Yeah, and I, I really like that, and I think that's uh, it's conviction that you don't necessarily get in a, in a in a mediocre performance on screen. You need you need that that type of text, don't you, to get it. I think so too i think a lot of portrayals and
1: adaptations in general when you have a character who is very central we have like a protagonist i think protagonists and from in the book adaptations always come come off a little less than their book version mm-hmm. because you don't have the advantage of their interior headspace being known to you you know that's right you're you don't know what they're thinking of uh, and what they're doing at the time period and and everything where so so w- we, when you see them on a screen, they're, they're only doing, you know, they're driving the story forward, but then there's not much else to them. And so people find the supporting characters a lot more interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But, but with the novel is different. The protagonist is what drives the story, right? Mm-hmm. And all the best novels have a really good protagonist. And the ones that are weak novels are the ones that have a weak, that, that are the ones that don't, don't have a very interesting protagonist at all.
0: So mm-hmm.
1: I think that's really key to, to many things mm-hmm. in general.
0: <laughs> in in general, but certainly in the Bond series. Um, in the Bond series, in the Bond series, part, part, particularly. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if uh, you want to say anything about this. I don't want to go on about it, but it's I find it interesting that when uh, you know when Bond and at some point in these I can't remember where it is, but some point in these early uh, chapters in New York, um, he's getting what he refers to as a degree of Americanization from the FBI and obviously that's quite a painful ordeal for Bond like he doesn't want to be sat there and spoken to about what to do and how to behave but they end up they end up needing to dress him as an American with different kinds of suits and collars and different shoes and it's almost like he finds that all a little bit too much. Yeah
1: absolutely yeah he felt that I think he kind of a little bit of cultural resistance going on there in in my, in my opinion. And this is kind of adding to kind of like the critique of America's society at the time that I think Fleming was trying to portray in, 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 in many ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a bit of a MacGuffin revealed in, or um, I should say offered with his, uh, his cover, you you know, about the new Englander, uh, Boston or Maine he's from, I can't remember Boston, maybe that he's on some, he's part of some trust company coming from London and uh, he needs to, you know, re- be reminded to say, like, check instead of bill and cab instead of taxi and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Because itself, this, this, that, that never goes velvet. anywhere. Yeah. Like, you never hear of Bond using his cover anywhere, really. No, it's, it's true. I mean, it, once on the train, I think he uses it on the train. Yeah. Bryce, I think was yeah, his
1: name. That's right. Bryce, which was Mr. another Mr. one of Bryce. Fleming's pals, wasn't it? Yeah. Ivor Bryce. That, that, that's right. And he also had a friend named uh, Lighter as well. Yeah. and they combined uh, the two names together, I believe, because Ivor Bryce's middle name was Felix. Okay, right. So then Felix and,
0: and Lighter became the same character. He became one character basically. Yeah. Well, if I ever get famous writing a book, I'll uh, I'll put you in it somehow. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean you're not gonna return the favor? I thought I already did. I thought I had. I I I, I thought I already had a, a a person,
1: a Scotus or something, in one of my books.
0: I'm uh, not sure. Maybe you do, but you haven't finished publishing them yet.
1: No, that's true. Well, that's another story entirely.
0: It is. We could do a podcast on that. Anyway, right.
1: Moving on. We could. Moving on. We got... um, during this Publish time... our book, anyways. Uh... What? <laughs> no, I was going to say, uh, please publish this book. Yeah, that, that would be a
0: good, a good time. Maybe I'll write it. <laughs> <laughs> publish the book and maybe I'll write it, yeah. Um, anyway, during this time in Harlem, or in uh, New York, he's reading up on uh, voodooism and the kind of history and culture and Haiti and the religious sensibility of its people. And this is where he taps into his pal, Fairmore's book, uh, Fleming writes into his pal's book, The Traveler's Tree. And obviously this is worth some attention just because it reveals the travelogue type writing that Fleming would obviously have done himself as a writer, but also really favored. As yeah, as a journalist and as a traveler around the world. Do you want to say anything about that?
1: Oh. Uh, well, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward passage. It just, it mm, just mm-hmm. descri- describes voodoo voodoo culture and sets that up sets up the mystique that Mister Big is using, yeah. Uh, in terms of instilling fear and and get, get getting uh, I guess poorly educated Negroes to work in his organization, basically. Yeah, I mean, I... like he's t- he's taking advantage of all the criminal elements there and essentially using them to to you know as he's like the the light and they're all the moths drawing to his flame and they're and they'll do anything that he says because. Uh, because because voodoo culture is still really prevalent even in the 50s in African even in Africa and even in America, mm-hmm. uh, I guess that that cultural influence is still there. So he uses that quite well to spread the rumors and spread fear
0: to uh, rule over his organization with an iron fist. Yeah, yeah. Well, the explosion comes and it comes with a note that says the heart of this clock has stopped ticking. The beats of your own are numbered. I know that number and I have started to count. Um, Bond isn't particularly bothered by that he isn't really intimidated by it even in the quiet moments of the private narrative that we are reading he's not bothered by it not at all and, um, <laughs> it's almost like it compels him to go, to go further it intrigues him it, it provokes him yeah it does Yeah. Um, anyway so yeah then they go to Harlem um, you want to take over here and say a few things about the Boneyard because I think that I mean like yourself I've read a lot of books not as many as you have I've been to more nightclubs than you have probably uh, I think that's probably the coolest name for a nightclub ever, the Boneyard. Absolutely, yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty awesome name. I think it connotes some fine,
1: good eating and some, uh, <laughs> uh, some, some good drinks, and uh, it also kind of connects
0: to the barren Samity aspect of Mr. Big's persona yeah. as well. And you know? given the dance that we're gonna see, um, it also connects to the sexualization of the male member. Abs- oh yeah, boneyard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely say that. So it, it is definitely a, there's a triptych of uh, more so, <laughs> even more so than 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 three parts. But uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, connotations you can draw from the from the name of that establishment.
0: Do you want to say anything about about that um, night out in Harlem where Bond and Lighter get in trouble?
1: Well, what, I really like this the, this passage, one of my favorite parts of the novel because. For the first time reading a Bond novel compared to even Casino Royale and, and, you know, the tragedy of Vesper's situation, which I think is kind of shoehorned in there at the end, in my personal uh, opinion. But when you get to live and let die, uh, the camaraderie between Felix and Bond is really felt here. Mm -hmm. You also feel Fleming's, I think, I think even though he has the, the black person as other in this film, in this book i think he appreciates the culture and i think he i think he has, he finds it fascinating and you can tell he's really into um you know the american jazz age you know in, in this and in that in that cultural aspect of it of that era so so i think Felix being a bond geek is a bit of being a bit of a jazz geek sorry is um kind of Fleming kind of tooting his horn about his knowledge of of, of jazz you know mm-hmm so we kind of have this British person, this very, you know, tight-lipped British individual, Fleming, you know, writing his books in Jamaica, uh, in a post-colonial kind of aspect. But at the same time, he also seems fascinated by uh, his subjects, so to speak. Um, but really, though, I, I, really like, I really like this section because, as I said, it really develops the camaraderie. It shows, not develops, it shows a camaraderie between Bond and, and, and Leiter. And it really brings lighter in as a character that matters in the storyline. Yeah. So that his eventual fate, the, the terrible fate that awaits him is a great emotional impetus uh, afterwards. It propels the narrative so much that you're invested into what happens to it, right? Mm -hmm, mm Because the character is invested into what's happening. There's no longer worrying about MacGuffins to like doubloons. Who cares about about, uh, about doubloons? This friendship between me and and this man has been uh, sabotaged by this by this villain, and he's hurt my friend, and I'm going and as an honorable man, I'm going to avenge him, and that and that to me, I kind of really draws you into the story even more, and it, I think this whole setup uh, in Harlem is is what Fleming did there, and it it basically provides a foundation for that that later narrative propulsion and how he describes, you know, them going to different bars and everything. And you really get a sense of the life, the the taste, the smells, everything. Fleming is very descriptive, very tactile, very sensory in what he describes, with the different drinks Bond has and just the atmosphere itself. You can just perfectly visualize it. And uh, to me, I think it was, was, I think it was, it was really moment minus, you know, separating myself from the racist context uh, that really made me um, say, this is actually a really good book.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that bit, um, that chapter entitled "Table Z," chapter six or seven—I can't remember which one it is—but where they're sitting on that table in the back, and you get this great description of the uh, of the lighting in the bar, and just before the dance starts, you know, the drummers leave, and you've got these pencil thin lights that are coming through the roof, and there's all this colored glass around that's kind of reflecting the light, and then you mm-hmm. get this um, well, this description—I I quoted this bit here. Uh, Again, like you said, take yourself out of the racist text for a minute. It was hot and the air was thick with smoke and the sweet, feral smell of 200 Negro bodies. The noise was terrific, an undertone of the jabber of Negroes enjoying themselves without restraint, punctuated by sharp bursts of noise, shouts and high giggles as loud voices called to each other around the room. From time to time, a man or a girl would erupt on the dance floor and start a wild solo jive. Friends would clap the rhythm. There'd be a burst of catcalls and whistles. If it was a girl, there'd be cries of strip, 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 get hot, baby, shake it, shake it. And the MC would come out and clear the floor amidst groans and shouts of derision. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Yeah, and then you got these two white guys who are sitting at the table watching all this stuff happen, right? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's 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 yeah. If you think about that visually, the contrast is quite yeah. is 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 quite humorous. It's very humorous, and that is the one point where Bond starts to get nervous because he starts sweating. Then and Leiter, I think uh, at some point tries to talk privately to him about where the exits are or something like that. About you know where he needs to go if there's a problem, like go behind the bar or there's a service exit. And Bond kind of felt like at that point, it didn't matter if something was going to happen to them, then they were already in too deep, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it was like, here here we go. Whatever happens, happens. And I guess that's kind of a human thing as well, because you you can stand in front of your broad uh, 30-story... hotel room window and look out to Harlem and feel big but the minute you're in amongst a foreign environment where there's sweltering bodies jumping and gyrating and you're in the dark and you're disoriented and you're not speaking the language you know you stand out um not just because of the color of your skin but because you're not dancing like the rest of them I guess that's where you you can't feel quite as tough eh?
1: absolutely it, it it's um no matter you know how confident you are about something, um, we're, you're always going to be a place if you're overwhelmed or by a certain other group of people that that aren't that don't act the way that you do or think the way that you do. Yeah. Um, it's a very I mean I myself have gone traveling and whatnot and and being in a place that's unfamiliar to you that you know nothing about that people everyone around you has an advantage. It's intimidating mm-hmm. and even more so I guess in this situation.
0: Yeah, so. Table Z, as it's called, um, kind of spins around and descends into the ground just before this beautiful black woman, who is, you know, basically—well, um, she's not stripping, but she is stripping. But Bond doesn't get to see it all because he's taken down um, into this passageway, and this dude named Teehee, as we learned, that was his name, drags him along to see Mister Big for the first time. And it was there—it right. was there—it's there that uh, Bond and Leiter are separated. And in his conversation with Mr. Big, Bond quite cleverly downplays his knowledge and downplays his suspicions. And he pretends to be there just looking about and looking for these coins. He mentions nothing about the bigger picture in Smirsh, and Smirsch. He has no in- – and I think you know Bond in the films would have done that. He would have had that that bravado to just be like, oh, yeah, uh, Blofeld or whoever you are, you're a Smirsch operative and I'm going to kill you. But here, yes. it, it's a little more realistic, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. He's not saying, like, who he is. He's being very professional about it. And uh, he's asking questions, not answering them sort of thing. Yeah, I've just got the, um, I just opened up the book here, because uh, we're moving in. I, I mean, this is really the motivating incident of the of the narrative. Like, if Bond and Leiter don't get pulled down uh, and separated in Mr. Big's club, the Boneyard, then the rest of the story doesn't really happen. So I, I got my book now next to me so that we can, um, you know, refer to it if we need to. But uh, you want to say a few words about what uh, what happens after this?
1: Well, essentially, um, Mr. Big declares, um, you know, that it, he seems like this one of these individuals who is so intellectual and it really doesn't he doesn't really have ambitions to be the top dog. He just wants to put art into every some art uh, and passion into everything that he does in an intellectual fashion. Yeah. And so, you know, him being, as he says, um, in his own way that he's bored, you know, that's why I'm going to spare you because I need something to challenge me and everything like that. And if he disappears, you know, people will ask questions and uh, that wouldn't be good in in this current situation. So he decides to spare Bond, but, you know, uh, and Felix as well. Um, But of course, at this this point, Bond and Felix are are separated. Yeah. Um, we also have the encounter with Solitaire here as well, the first encounter of her uh, in the storyline, and how she, w- w- this is the beginning of her seeing Bond as a out for her current situation as well as sort of like his captive mistress, uh, s- s- so to speak.
0: Yeah, they share a glance, and Bond knows in that glance that this woman needs to escape, and that her her loyalties aren't to Mister Big, and she's somewhat of a prisoner. And it, I mean that bit of the the book was a little bit too convenient really i think that whole oh this woman needs this you know this woman needs to be saved and i i i don't know that's probably the weakest bit of it for me. i
1: i think the narrative kind of justifies it in a way though because in the end solitaire doesn't really contribute much to the end game anyways no you know like to me it's the driving um it's the emotional connection between bond and lighter is a driving force of this source story like camaraderie and friendship and Solitaire, who seemed like she was significant to begin with, ends up sort of becoming uh, a, a really kind of just like almost like a, a prize at the end of the storyline. Yeah, very much. I think I gets, think she's actually referred to as is. a cons-
0: as a prize basically. On a couple of uh, occasions, Bond refers to her as a prize. That's right. Uh, because yeah. and I mean obviously that objectifies her quite you know ostensibly, but more to the point, it it shows her importance as a figure. She's not really.
1: And she's also sort of a. We're kind of going into the girl aspect of of that's our fine. angle, that's our, can, yeah. our angle rating and and whatnot, but I'm just going to say is that if she's more of a projection of the vanity of Mr. Big himself, and by taking her and and humiliating Mr. Big, that's what Bond feels is a way to get under his skin, so to speak, to be really show himself as an adversary. That's right. Take his girl,
0: and uh, you'll embarrass him quite a bit. Yeah, make, um,
1: especially especially someone with such power and control and, and, and fear-mongering, you know, this would definitely lower that to some people. I think that this, this Limey comes in and kills a couple of his guys after, escape, after after, you know, and, uh, and then takes his girl, you know, it definitely does, it doesn't make Mr. Big look good. And you already hear afterwards that Mr. Big is sending operatives out everywhere to find Bond, right? So, yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, Bond gets back to the hotel room and he hears from Felix Leiter 4 4.30 in the morning, who basically just tells him he's okay. And Bond gets in touch with London. And this is the first time in the Bond universe uh, that we get a reference to Universal Exports. That's uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that. because yes, didn't mention it. But yeah, Universal export the sort of the, the cover operation of MI6. That's right. So Bond talks to his boss in these kind of um, secluded channels and Lighter then tells him, you know, away to Florida and this is where he gets on the train, but not before he tells Solitaire where, you know, if she needs an escape. Um, or th- don't they meet at a diner or something like that? Uh, well, what happens breakfast? is that she, no, she meets him on, in the train car. Yeah, but there's a plan for them to do that, isn't there?
1: Yeah, but there's a plan for them to do that. And then, then they, and then they meet Lighter in, in a diner or somewhere in,
0: uh, in St. Petersburg, I believe. Yeah, at the hotel on the beach, isn't it? Where they meet him. Yeah, it's the hotel on the beach.
1: That's correct. Yeah, sorry.
0: Yeah, and so they're going down to Florida, and it's really here where the uh, the next locale in the story opens up. They they all get down to Florida, and they meet up. And this was an interesting section for me, because I wasn't quite sure. Of, oh, we're jumping ahead of something important. The train ride is really quite cool. There's a lot of nice description in Chapter 10 and 11, uh, where you get them crossing through America. And this is... Fleming using some of his own experience because he took a, a train – I remember reading it. I don't – I didn't write anything down about it but he took – It was the, the exact same train too, the Silver Phantom. Is that what it was called? Yeah, okay. Well, he um, – I thought it was a meteor or something like that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The the uh, meteor, yeah. I think he changed the name for the book. Yeah. Well, whatever the fact. I mean he's writing well because he uh, knows this and he's writing about what he knows. Um Anyway, you get lots of nice description in these chapters, and this is where he and Solitaire kind of have an engagement of sorts, but they don't sleep together. They decide to wait, uh, although she teases him with her boobs and with kissing him and all this, but he's injured his hand. His finger was broken, remember, with uh, the broken finger. So, yeah. Yes. And so there's a bit of... um, uh, cock teasing going on and then eventually they reach florida and they meet up with lighter and lighter is kind of um he's a little bit aloof uh, a little sheepish at first when bond comes in but th- because he doesn't know who this chick is and doesn't really know if he can trust her and anyway they all get together and that's when like bros, said, before
1: hoes, bros, bros before bros hose, man bros
0: before hose. before hose. yeah yeah <laughs> And just like you said in your introduction or your plot summary, that's when he and Leiter decide to go investigate this uh, warehouse, Worse. Ouroboros Worm Factory. Ouroboros uh, Worm Factory, yeah. That, worm and Bait, right, is what it is. Worm, that's, worm and Bait, yes, that's, that's right. That's the front that Mr. Big uses to bring in the coins um, submerged in the sand of all the fish tanks. And anyway, uh, right, so yeah, I mean, you want to you pick up from there?
1: So... Leiter and Bond go to this Ouroboros, um bait uh, bait and tackle operation as a warehouse off in St. Petersburg, and uh, there they encounter uh, shooting pelicans off the docks. That's is, right. yeah. is is the robber who is who is the uh, the henchman that runs the Ouroboros for Mr. Big, and um, he's very kind of um, what's the word? He's very bellicose, but uh, he doesn't really give anything away. He he knows his rights and. He's not going to let Bond get in. So automatically, he's established as kind of a creepy, <laughs> cre- creepy, kind of s- sadist- sadistic SOB, I guess. That's right. And yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with, this is when Bond and, and later empty handed, return back to the hotel
0: to find that Solitaire is gone. Yeah, do you know what, man? Like that, this part pissed me off in the book too. Because if this girl really is clairvoyant, and when at the end, at, <laughs> yes, at the end of chapter eleven and twelve, right? That's when, or whatever chapter it is, that's when she's afraid, right? You can tell she's afraid because her back's turned from him. She stares out of the window, and she's concerned about being left alone. So why the fuck doesn't she say something? Why doesn't she say, "Oh, by the way, when you're gone, I'm going to be abducted"? If if my powers are true, you know, like, and and Bond is a dick for this as well because if he's really trying to use her to get you know, to hit the dignity and the pride of Mr. Big, then he should take this chick everywhere he goes. Uh,
1: yeah, I suppose. But I guess th- I kind of felt in that sense uh, that there was just some sort of understanding between Bond that clairvoyancy
0: isn't real. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, okay, there is, yes. I mean, th- you're right, there is that because she says that she's afraid of Mr. Big and he's like, why? And she says, because he's a zombie. And he goes, well, that's pretty convenient. Do you really believe it, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely so i think maybe Bond's skepticism just kind of just didn't uh would even consider that the possible thought of it you know it's well, just yeah, because yeah. this is the guy who works with every little tool he can every resource you know in a very practical fashion plus it, it seems pros, to me pros that before hose he has pros before before
0: <laughs> all right anyway so yeah the robber comes into things here and he's a big dick basically but he's really cool like i do like him he spits on the ground and he shoots birds and he just sits outside this rotten bait factory and just acts the total prick. It's a really interesting character,
1: too, because, like, who is this Hayseed, and how is he going to be a match for Bond and Leiter? You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like, just yeah. push this guy aside, and no, this guy is definitely a creep, you know? He's memorable. He is
0: memorable. Any Anyway, he's... um. Yeah, so they they escape any problem with the robber and they go back and uh, that's when they find out that just like Vesper was stolen by the bad guys, uh, Solitaire is stolen by the bad guys as well. It's a similar trope that we had in Casino Royale and it's not so much the motivation for Bond to continue here as it was in Casino Royale um, because, like you said, she's just a prize that might be there at the end, but it is an added incentive, I guess, and uh, he decides that... He's, it's just another reason to want to go back after him, right? Absolutely,
1: and of course, this leads up to the scene where, to, to the moment where, uh, um, goes to work himself to investigate further. Yeah, yeah, I love that section too. That that's really good. And uh and he get a really bad situation.
0: Yeah that's a great scene it's no i was just saying it's a good scene there where he goes back to the factory and he climbs the window and he gets in and he discovers the um you know the coins and he figures out how big mr big's been hiding the the um the, the coins and that's when the robber and he have their altercation that's where he discovers what's happened to or how felix leiter got injured and all the rest of it right
1: yeah that's right, and he falls in in into the trap uh, he well he, he coaxes the villain into the trap basically
0: yeah but the the plans for him to go off to Jamaica are are kind of set at that point in the novel, and he's going out after <clears throat> pardon me he's going out after Mr. Big and this is where he meets strangways, yeah. Strangways, yes and i i was actually really taken a, I guess it's because of this
1: of reading the uh seen the bond films before reading the books this really took me aback because Strangways is the uh the first character you, you're introduced to you in Dr. No, the doctor
0: no the film that's right and and of course he's very quickly taken out completely he is yeah um he's good here though and it is you know, obviously there's a connection there between Strangways in the book and Strangways in the film and it is jamaica at the same time so it it does suit that the the two worlds could intersect that way absolutely um yeah so anyway he 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 arrives in uh he arrives in jamaica and he's quite happy and i think you know if we're going to talk about your anti-american sentiment or criticism you know when he's leaving florida which really he's and i know we're skimming over a lot here but in the pursuit of time i think we have to he basically bashes florida uh, at least st petersburg and Tampa's a little better, but St. Petersburg is just being this big um, octogenarian uh, orgy full of shuffleboard and prune juice, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. It just seems to me when he goes from Florida, America slash Florida to Jamaica, when he's in Jamaica, he feels more comfortable because I feel
0: he's in a much more colonial atmosphere than he was in yeah, the States. Yeah, I totally pick up on that as well. He refers to America as El Dolorado. <laughs> You know, obviously, more interested in, in in economy and making money and capitalism than than kind of living the high life, right? Yeah, exactly. Where Jamaica
1: just exists as it is, people do what they're supposed to do within the Commonwealth, you know? Yeah, totally.
0: Um, it is. I really this is probably one of my favorite parts in the whole book, though. Like when he's flying, um, they get into a storm. I don't know if you were aware of that, like, or if you were. Kind of, I,
1: I I remember that because I always wondered because when you know people in those planes back then that they did like. You see, like you know, you see, you see, like the Pan Am kind of lifestyle people had, like in the '60s and '50s, where you know the the classy looking stewardesses in their uniforms and smoking on a plane and all the luxurious, you know, s- 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 you know services that they had on there. Like, except that each each plane was like the Hindenburg or something like that. And you always wonder. I mean, like, are the air travel today today is just so. Paranoia, so full of paranoia nowadays. But back then, it was just a luxury. Yeah, and the, the very fact that, like, at any moment, this 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 lap of luxury that they're living in could just collapse in one moment because of the weather, you know. And you just realize, wait, we're in a flying tin can, that's ten thousand exactly yeah. feet above the earth, you know, and yeah. that's it.
0: Yeah, that's it. And I like that Bond or Fleming, sorry cuts from third-person objective to some stream of consciousness here. I think it's a really neat switch, and it shows the infallibility of, of the character, and I think it helps the audience or the reader kind of um, connect with Bond as, on these personal levels because he, he doesn't take for granted the fact that he is, like you say, in a flying tin can, and he, he kind of reduces the experience or the, the possibility to something as simple as a hangover that somebody in London might have had if they were checking the wings. Uh, Gander and Montreal get shutouts in this section too. Yay, Canada. Yay, Newfoundland. Anyway. Yay, Newfoundland, too. Uh, yes, of course. But I, I really like this, and I think this is something about Bond's DNA as a character, you know, that comes out, that he, he has a hardened realism, and that if he's going to die, then he's going to die. And that, you know, he, that's why he says, I'm just going to smoke the this cigarette and suck it straight into my lungs. Obviously, that's a cultural thing, smoking cigarettes, and Bond of today doesn't do that very much. But the metaphor really works for the character because if he's... Just taking his chance in a, in a friggin' tin can flying in the air, then he's going to enjoy every minute he gets, you know? That's right. Even though Bond, you know, lives he's a hardened individual
1: who lives, like, life, you know, to on, on a tightrope all the time. He still lives life to the fullest in the best possible way he can. Yeah. And enjoying every aspect of cultural life wherever he goes. Yeah. And you notice, for one thing, I, I noticed in this book, too, and more so than the last book, Man, he loves breakfast.:
0: Oh, dude, does he ever? And at a time at a time when the United Kingdom I mean, the U.K. just ended rationing in 1954 after the war, so all of the things that he eats, not just the breakfast, but definitely the breakfasts um, those would have been like fantastic episodes of pleasure for the reader of Britain. I mean, they might even have been tormenting, you know That, that amount of excess on a plate could never have existed at a time in, in Britain when the people were reading this book.
1: I can see uh, that. That's a very good parallel draw. I can I can see that now. Um, I just found it really funny. Is that is that like he cares more? I mean, because here he is. Like you know, like uh, after he gets after the whole adventure is over, you know, with Mister Big and the, the the yacht detonating and being saved by Quirrell and whatnot. The first thing he does before he goes to the hospital is make sure he has his breakfast. That's right. Yeah, he does <laughs> uh, with like one arm kind of hanging off the edge there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that he's like eating his breakfast you know yeah well when he gets to jamaica and the plane lands safely and he has his breakfast um he orders from m and from strangways a whole bunch of equipment and i i, li- I like this section because he is going to cut out drinking for a week or uh, and he's going to start training for a week and he's going to go back to these swims and everything because he intends on assaulting surprise island which is where these the coins, and the Secator, Big's boat, have been moored, he's going to surprise this surprise The, the, pers- the personal yacht of uh, Mr. Yeah. Big. That's right. He's going to uh, he's going to access it underground, or sorry, underwater. And it's interesting that when I was just doing some prep for this uh, little conversation of ours, I learned that uh, Fleming actually scuba dived with Jacques Cousteau a number of times.
1: Yeah, I, I read about that. And, and, and the way he was describing, like... Uh, uh, that whole adventure trek was just a, was just a, a fantastic chapter. It's just so exciting, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, I was wondering, like, is he encountering every type of like undersea <laughs> life, like you know, in, in, yeah. in, in that reef, you know? He's definitely. You yeah, it's almost like as if Bond was in a forest, you know. It, it, it was, <laughs> if, he, if he wasn't in a reef, but if he was in a forest trying to get to Mr. Big, he'd fight a bear, he'd fight a raccoon, he'd fight a wolverine, he'd run from
0: a pack of wolves.
1: <laughs> You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. There's like every animal species, every marine animal species flies at them. Like there's sea cucumbers and there's fucking squid yeah. and there's sharks and everything. Just the, And there's only, a, what is it, 300 yards from one to <laughs> one? 300 <laughs> yards, yeah.
1: And the way they describe the octopus grabbing onto him from this crevice, it's like, it looks like describing like the octopus is going to pull him in and eat him alive it's like some giant octopus or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I guess that's... I don't know. I mean, he's got to make it big. He's got to make it adventurous. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. But in this instance here, this is when you you realize that, you know, Bond might be, you know, like hmm. great adventure literature in the same way, but it's also, it can be really pulpy, you know, like. Yeah, totally hyperbolic. Almost
0: Tintin, almost Tintin, almost in that respect. Yeah, it is kind of like that. But then he kind of tries to justify it when he discovers that one of the reasons why no one gets to this island and finds Morgan's cave is because Mr. Big chums like an entire circumference around it like constantly. So that yeah, nothing, with the, nothing yeah, but big like, sharks and animals come to it.
1: Barracuda, yeah, that that that's definitely right. Yeah,
0: he just chums the entire, entire a- area. Yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, anyway, uh, manta ray, octopus, shark, barracuda, <laughs> everything <laughs> come into play here. Yes, absolutely. It's a whole menagerie of undersea life there. Yeah, And it's funny, this sharks is the first book, of course, that uses sharks, and a lot of the Bond films would come to use sharks later on, and I think Fleming's kind of playing into something here, um, that is going to become aped in the films later on. Sharks with laser beams. Sharks with frickin' laser beams. With freaking frickin' laser beams, yeah, that's right. Anyway, right, so he does his one-week training, he goes and he accesses the island, and, um, there are some, I mean, we're skipping over, but there's some really lovely writing in this book, um... The end of the chapters, I remember reading Casino Royale, we talked about John Betjeman's um, comment about how Fleming hooks you in at the end of the chapters and, and creates this thing that's later been described as the Fleming sweep that kind of picks you up at the end of the chapter and leads you into the next one. And yeah, there is like a hook at the end of each, each chapter that kind of brings you in. Yeah, there are some really nice descriptions in these, like when he's looking up at the stars at the end of one of these chapters, I've just written this down here, the stars oh, p- yes. Winked down their cryptic morse and he had no key to their cipher. You know, just, uh, I, I love that piece. It's, it's, it's just the, uh, the whole fatalism of it, you know? Yeah, and you do learn in Live and Let Die that Bond is a fatalist char- fatalistic character. He believes at least part of his characterization is drawn in this fatalism. And we get that with him on the plane thinking about life and how quickly it could be to die. So whatever's going to happen to him is going to happen to him. You do get that. And I think that helps propel him as a courageous figure. It does, too. And I think it also kind of picks up, you know,
1: that conversation about the nature of good and evil between him and Mathis and Casino Royale. And it, it continues on, think on here with displaying Mr. Big as this kind of like this oafish, huge, ogreish type individual. And at the same time, who's just bored at what he's doing, not because he wants to rule the world and conquer people, but he's just bored and wants to put artistic excellence in, into every criminal aspect. Mm-hmm. And it just, just kind of shows that idea of
0: the banality of evil. Yeah. And, um, there is something thematic about that that runs through the book. Like I'm, I'm in it because yeah, I'm making money and I'm having a a power trip and I've got authority, but at the same time, uh, it's just, it's just what I do, you know?
1: Yeah, and to me as well, it seems like just because he works for Smirsh doesn't mean that he respects Smirsh or respects their ideals either. Uh-huh. They're just useful to 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 him as an individual to do what he wants.
0: Yeah, you never get him. You never get him really talking objectively about Smirsh or his role in it as being this kind of philosophical or spiritual alignment. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, so Bond is afraid, obviously, before he does his little underwater trip, but he makes it there. Uh, Not before getting chunk of his arm, shoulder taken out by a barracuda because they chummed. uh, He because they were chumming the water. They discovered Bond, but he he manages to put one of these mines on the hull of the ship. Limpet mine, yeah, yeah. And conveniently, uh, he doesn't take the rest of them with him, but he buries them in the sand so that if they do discover him, they won't know that he put an explosive on the ship. I do think it's a little unrealistic that Mr. Big's men don't look for. Any, you know, mines on the boat, but whatever. I guess that doesn't really matter. This brings yeah. us to the denouement of the story, though, where Bond is captured and he's tied together with Solitaire, who he finds in uh, – has been kept in like a – kind of like a cave-like cell. Because Bond – I mean, Mr. Big's lair. Maybe you want to say something about the lair here just for a minute.
1: Uh, well, essentially, the lair is, has an underwater – entrance that kind of leads up into like a pool Uh and if if you've you've seen if you've seen the film live and die i guess it's very similar to that right yeah it's very it's very it's very it's very similar to that where it leads out into into a under into an underground cave that you access under, under underwater and then where mr big has kind of his base of
0: operations and this is also where solitaire is kept as well uh-huh, yeah. Oh, we should also give a shout-out to Whisper, um, that great fat character in the film, also has a role here in the book. He's just a guy who works a switchboard, but still, um, he has a, a role in the book. The reason he's coming to mind is because he gets blown up, doesn't he, in that... Uh, that no, he doesn't die. Mister. Uh, no, Whisper doesn't... No, Whisper,
1: uh, do, Whisper doesn't die. Not that I Mr. know. Mr. Big does,
0: yeah. Sorry, ignore me. Ignore me. Um, anyway, okay, so conveniently solitaire loses all of her clothes and is nakedly strapped to bond who just has a pair of trunks on and the two of them are going to be towed behind the Secator as it leaves for the last time surprise island at six o'clock sharp in the morning and they're going to be dragged upon and across the coral reef their flesh wounds will of course attract all of these hungry and waiting barracudas sharks manta rays sea cucumbers squid and shrimp who are going to chew on their morsels and that will be the end of them. So hopes Mister Big. Exactly, and uh, that will be pleasing to
1: him and get rid. So and he, he he's almost he's almost dispassionate about it when it happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of shows that he's really kind of a piece of work, where he comes up with this ingenious death for for the, for this people and and also for Solitaire, you know, who thinks he's betrayed him, but he's so dispassionate about it at the same time. Just kind of shows, you know, the black heart that he has. So.
0: His plan comes off, Bond's plan comes off, because the ship, uh, or the boat, the yacht does explode, uh, a couple of moments, um, seconds, perhaps, in realistic terms, after that which he expected, but it does explode, and because there is about 50 yards of of line between him and the boat, um, they manage to survive in amongst the shelter of the coral before they get ripped over it too hard. Um... And that's basically it. Like you said in your summary, he then uh, enjoys some downtime with solitaire on the beach and looks forward to two weeks of sex. <laughs> basically, it. Yep. That, yeah. And, oh yeah, and Quarrel rescues him. Of course, Quarrel comes in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did kind
1: of enjoy one part about this aspect, though, was at the moment that, like, um, they put the, he puts a limpet mine on the boat. There's this great kind of uh, you're automatically put on a, on, a, on the edge of your seat because now yeah. there's like this countdown that's going on as that's well. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, I think. Fleming planned that very well. The whole thing of them being dragged and will the bomb go off? Because it didn't give you it, what what he, what he did was with that whole keel hauling sequence. It, he 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 didn't he didn't want to give you a sense of despair uh, as a, as a reader. He wanted to give you a sense of excitement, you know. Yeah. And there was this chance that that it could go off, and that just kind of made it much more ex- exciting than it n- normally would have mm-hmm. if the bomb didn't exist there. And then he somehow managed to uh, escape escape it. Which is what Bond does in *Free Rise only when they have the keel
0: hauling sequence adapted for that film. That's right, and that's a great sequence in film, and it's a great sequence in the book. I really like this. I like the entire falling action of this story. I think yes, it's works. a fantastic, it's a fantastic denouement, the whole thing. Yeah, it is good. Um, much better, more satisfying book for me personally than. Um, than Casino Royale, but Casino Royale certainly establishes blueprint material. Now, we we entitled this episode, Josh, um, Bond Goes Big, not just because of Mr. Big, but this is really where Fleming spreads his wings and plays more confidently in the style of Bond. And like we were saying here, although Live and Let Die wasn't a book that um, would have been able to go in a Bond adventure without bringing us back to some of these explanatory um, introductory points about the character and what he does and who who he is and how careful he is. He is. It, it it does is. certainly make us feel as though it um um like this is this is going somewhere else. You know it uh, he 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 goes to different locations. We've got mm-hmm. a bigger narrative. We have bigger adversaries. The girl well solitaire is pretty much uh, just a prize. She is like a bond girl more traditionally, I guess. And um, locations, equipment, everything's bigger here.
1: Yeah no yeah it's exactly it's like bigger scale everything um I, I think Fleming feels more confident as a writer in this book and with the character and everything and he I felt that he really enjoyed writing this book and uh it it just pulses it just pulses with excitement I think the whole the whole narrative as a whole and there are no real lulls in it you know I, mm-hmm. I found I never found myself going like okay well this is uh okay well what's going to happen next kind of thing you know like yeah. I was never questioning uh, what was going on in the narrative I was always kind of kind of Hooked to, from one chapter to to the other. Like I said, I could have read this like probably within
0: an evening. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I, I suppose there's that, that. There's that bit to it. There's that feel to it. Um, there's a charm.
1: But there's, there, there's a thing when I, I find when you're reading, there's a moment where you just kind of want to stop reading and do something else or. You just get tired of reading for a moment,
0: or and, and but this, there's but there's also books that do the opposite too. So I mean, yeah, no, you're right. There are, and this is a book that has its charms, especially with the settings. They do manage to lure us in, uh, for as much as we've criticized Fleming, rightly so, I think, even given the context, some of these uh, racial prejudicial expressions and the way that he decorates um, black uh, America. It, there's a charm to Harlem, and there is a charm to Jamaica, though we don't get enough of it. It's, is, it is really only featured in the, the last third of the book. But it, uh, yeah, I mean, let, let's just wrap this conversation up by uh, sharing our angles.
1: Yeah, okay, sure. Um, so I guess I'll start with the uh, Allies and Adversaries, okay. ANGLE, uh, just, just to go back to what we, what we did last episode for those uh, who don't uh, quite remember. Uh, we have the idea of ANGLE, which is um, basically an, an acronym. Um, we have A, Allies and Adversaries, so we're talking about the, the allies Bond has and of course the adversaries, and we rate that out of five, mm-hmm. just as we rate uh, N, Narrative. Uh, G the girl the so-called Bond girl and uh, L the locale um, the locations where Bond is globe trotting in in, in, um, in the book also rated out of five and then of course the last one the the equipment that he uses in the story as well we also rate that out of five kind of like a nice little capsule review that we have for you
0: yeah and that that's the way we're gonna get our uh, our index. And our scoring system is going to come from that. So adversary, for me, okay, um, well, how do you want to do this? you want to go one-on-one one, or do you want me to give you my angle and then you give me yours? Yeah, my angle, your angle. Okay, um, right. So my angle on Live and Let Die, 1954 by Ian Fleming, the second Bond book. I gave the adversaries and the allies uh, a rating of four over five. I like Mr. Big. I think he's a more interesting character um, than Le Chiffre. Um I really like Felix Leiter, I think that I'm, I was close to giving it a 4.5, but I, I know that we haven't seen the last of Leiter, I like the way that the two, he and Bond, work together, but really Mr. Big is, at the core, that banality that you reference, I think is the thing that maybe kept me from giving him a little bit higher, he didn't have much of a motive in his crime, or if he did, it wasn't really explained, he just seems kind of like a of the Hutt type figure, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I liked him, I loved his henchmen I, I really thought that the robber was cool and I liked the, his little network of, of kind of uh, you know skulky droogs, I think they were cool but yeah, 4, I think it's a respectable score uh, out of mm-hmm. 5 not enough to really blow my top off but Mr. Big was fun uh, I would like to have seen more done with the voodoo influence though, it, it was kind of just piecemeal for me, maybe a little bit blanket to try to draw on some readers and create this mystique Uh, But it is a smokescreen for him, too, so maybe that's suitable. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, so that's four out of five on adversaries and allies. Narrative, uh, plot, pacing, and style, I really like this book. I think it reads well. It reads the second – well, I mean, I've read this when I was younger. Coming back to it, I really enjoyed it. I've given this a 4.5, and the only reason I didn't give it a 5 is an aesthetic reason. I I think that there are – while there are no lulls, like you said, in the narrative, for me at least, there's – there's ever so slightly something about the way Solitaire is written that I, I don't like. I, I don't, mm. I don't really like the fact that if she's a clairvoyant, she's pretty friggin' stupid in some ways. Like there's, there's. And something... he doesn't really, and he doesn't really do, do anything with it either. Yeah. You know, with that, that aspect. Yeah, I know, and and I think that maybe that's that component. I was wanting more out of the female character, but maybe that's something I should have downscored girls for. But four point five for narrative, um, girls. Yeah, I, I went 3.5 here, and the reason I used a half mark isn't because I think um, Solitaire deserves the extra half mark. I've given that half mark for that hot chick in the boneyard. <laughs> I, I totally did, man. I, I really liked that, and uh, it got me more excited than most of the scenes about Solitaire. But no, obviously Solitaire's an interesting girl. She's she's not well or, or fully drawn, I don't think, by Fleming in the story, but she's well drawn. Um Her role is really, like you've already said a couple of times, uh, a prize. She is a a plot point and some importance in, um, you know, hurting the armor of Mr. Big, but she's not much more than just a week or a fortnight's conquest for Bond. He's going to enjoy her, but he's not going to protect her or save her. You often wonder, is there like a safe house where all these Bond girls go after he he saves them, you know? (laughs)
1: it's like a little it's a
0: harem somewhere or something. Yeah, 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 there's like a harem someplace. Anyway, 3.5 out of 5. Uh locations, uh I went 4 for this. I really wanted to go higher, but uh as much as I liked the Harlem stuff and the um the St. Petersburg stuff, I I felt that it was I felt that some of the American observations and settings were um <clears throat> were c- critical to the point of maybe missing some of their charm. And th- th- I think there was some more that could have been pulled out of Florida. Jamaica, I would have liked to have seen more of, but this was already extended, extending on a bit in terms of the length of the book. So I see that we're going to see Jamaica again later on. I went four out of five for locations. In some ways, though, I could have gone a little higher. I did want to put four or five down, but I went for four. Uh, equipment... I went for four out of five as well. I really, really like the, the spear gun and the Benzedrine um, uh, inhaler. Not the inhaler, mm-hmm. sorry. The um, the capsules that uh, allowed his uh, – and, and the breathing apparatus that he had and all this kind of shit for underwater. The frog suit that he got from the uh, the Navy. Mm-hmm. and I thought all that was pretty cool. I did really like – and I don't know if this is equipment, but I think it kind of is equipment. Although it's Mr. Big, uh, I really like the um, – The the idea of using these tropical poisonous fish to hide the valuable coins, you know? I think that's really Mm -hmm. cool as a smuggling operation. So, yeah, I went four for the equipment. Um, Bond doesn't really have a lot of equipment, but what he has is pretty cool, I guess. He does get a nice car from Lighter, too, although I forget what that is. Yeah, so I went four, 4.5, 3.5, four, and four. So, uh, what's that a total of? I've got uh, 16... 17, 18, 19. Is that right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 16, 17, 18. Oh, that's 20. 20, wow. 20 out of 25 for live and let die for me. 4 for adversary, 4 for narrative, uh, 3, 5 for girl, uh, 4 for locales, 4 for equipment, and the extra 0.5 for narrative. That is my angle on live and let die. Over to you. All right. Well,
1: um, Going with the first one, Allies and Adversaries, um, I, found, I found this book pretty strong in that over over, over overall. Um, I'm actually going to say 4.5 out of five is my total for for that one. Okay. Um, I acknowledge that Mr. Big could have been a little bit more drawn out, and again, as I mentioned, the banality of evil. Um, there was something I think uh, there was one faucet that was that that was missing to his character that made him a little more interesting. I also think, too, is that as horrible as his death was and as satisfying as it was when Bond watches this moment of gothic horror as the sharks and the barracuda tear him to pieces, um, I found that um, it was kind of a little lackluster in the end because or anticlimactic because Bond... all Because if Mr. Big had been the one to deliver lighter to the sharks, I think it would have been a lot more satisfying. Mm. But instead, we have the robber being the one that does it. And to me, he kind of ends up being, like to me, like the Boba Fett almost of, of, of you know, you, you know, like that secret villain, you know what I mean? Like that, um, really kind of interesting aspect of, uh, about the book that, um, it makes one want to read again about, oh yeah, well, Mr. Big. Yeah. He's, um, you know, he was the big bag, big bad and whatever, but I don't know. I found the robber much more c- creepy. Okay, cool. So for that, and, um, I also like some of the portrayal, like, um, there's typical like type of thugs, minions like like mooks like Teehee, for example, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, who was much more uh, what, what what's the word? He was much more di- differently rendered in the film version, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I also like the idea of Blabbermouth, you know, who was a kind kind of like this like this this naive <laughs> yeah. thug that worked for Mr. Big and. He he, lighter got along really good because of the love of jazz music, right? Mm-hmm. And I just found that was a kind of realistic portrayal because yeah. of a guy that was caught up in Mr. Big because he that's felt cool. like he had to be.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. He he, and he helps lighter kind of escape, but he's a little worried about it. And no, you're right about that. And I, I didn't give that enough credit. I don't think that whole like I know you liked it and you 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 cited it that whole uh, uh, lighter jazz geek type thing that kind of saved his ass, didn't it? It really did. And, be, and as I mentioned, the whole lighter j- jazz aspect.
1: I, uh, to me, like uh Philips later, I just found him a great character in this book, and I, I, you know, I felt with Bond when what happened to him and everything, and it was a lot stronger. In, in the, it, it was a lot stronger for me in this regard, um, as a narrative um, reason to deal with Mister Big because of what happens to him, and so the camaraderie between Lighter and Bond when they go on the trip to Harlem and working together, you know, America and, and the U and in uh, and the UK, it just it just fit really well and. Yeah, I just found out all the characters, r- 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 all the adversaries, all the allies, um, Strangways as well. I found him intriguing, um, kind of a mysterious figure with his patch eye. And he just kind of really found him interesting as well. And, the, and so, like, and there wasn't much done with him. So I have a, I have a feeling that, you know, he would definitely, he, he definitely intrigued me. Um, I mentioned the robber. Um, uh, and of course, you have like those Uncle Tom characters, like Quarrel as well. And, and And the porter on the train as well. Yeah, the port um, is a good guy. Yeah, he's a good guy too. Yeah, but again, you know, he's, you're making he falls me, in that Uncle Tom kind of aspect though.
0: He does. You're making me uh, question whether it deserves another half point. Um, I do like them. I mean I don't have as much bad to say about them as I do good. I just ultimately feel like the big bad is a little too banal. But anyway, I'm sorry, man. Narrative, go it, for it. Yeah. This is, that, that's where I take the half point off is I found
1: Mr. Big was just missing that one element. So I give everything else four point five out of five, right? Yep. That's the whole thing because okay. we're rating both the allies and the adversaries under one. So yeah, yeah. If I would rate Mr. Big out of five on his own, like just as an as an as an adversary, uh, maybe three point five. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving on to narrative, uh, I found it taut, fast paced. Um, the 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 revenge aspect gave it emotional intensity, especially in the denouement. Um it was pretty thrilling as a whole. And as I said, there's no real lulls in the story. So I really love the narrative. Um, I guess thinking about that whole solitaire aspect about how like her clairvoyancy, I guess that part didn't work. And it seemed like something that, that that Fleming wanted to set up, but he didn't really do anything with it. So I found that was kind of a bit of a, of a a kind of a, a, as you say, a bit bit of a hole, I guess you would call it. Um, So I guess I could take one half point off for that and go for 4.5 out of five. All right, so you're tied up with me on that. What about girls, Josh? Girls, I um, I would. i I. I was found. I found Solitaire somewhat interesting, but again, we have no payoff with her psychic abilities, um, and um, the idea of her being a prideful person on her Haitian French aristocrat background. That definitely went into her character, but it wasn't fleshed out enough for me to really appreciate her. I think I found Vesper a little more interesting character than Solitaire, personally. Mm. and um i don't know it's just one of those things where i found that um she and she just didn't seem to have any purpose in the story whatsoever you know like at least with, with casino royale fleming wrote the last act based on vesper herself right yeah and yeah. so it just and it just seems to me and, it's, and, and and what happened to vesper gives it gives uh uh momentum to bond's uh, you know, his, 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 his mission statement almost in many ways too, of his character. And I just found Solitaire was just, as you, as we said, like, and as they mentioned, as me mentions, a prize. um Yeah. The, the boneyard girl was great. Uh, that was definitely an interesting kind of uh vo- vo- voyeuristic kind of scene, you know, that, uh you know, like where, I think that that's because that whole section in Harlem was just so well done. Uh, despite, yeah. I think, you know, I the think racist you're right. Overtones. That, by, the time, really, by the
0: time she comes into it, I'm already fully immersed in this in, – in, interested in this environment. Yeah. So you're basically like – at that point, I'm at the peelers and I'm I'm looking at the flesh,
1: right? That's basically what you're doing right, now, right then and there, right? Yeah, so, yeah. E- exactly. And none of the kind of like the fantasy aspects of Solitaire's character was as titillating as uh, no. the Boneyard girl in that way, right? Awesome. So I'm going to say – I'll give the I'll give an extra point five for the Boneyard Girl and say three point five out of five.
0: A <laughs> nice one. You're with me on that, okay? Um, yeah, okay. I won't go. The any locales?
1: Further. yeah, locales. Uh, as for the locales, I give that a five out of five. Uh, the depiction of Manhattan at the time was just so vivid. And it's perfectly captured that city at the time period, in, 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 in my opinion, from the airport, from Idlewild, now J- JFK Airport, yeah. all the way to Manhattan. That part was really done well. The idea of like concrete stalagmites, uh, you know, the, the uh, cities, um, yeah, uh, yeah the, the, uh, the towers and stuff. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Uh, the Root of the Silver Phantom was well de- uh, was well described um, and St. Petersburg and its bingo uh, influenced culture. Um <laughs> So as a travel log, then you really liked living that day. Oh, as a travel log, I, I I personally love it. And despite some criticism that Fleming has for American culture in there and kind of missing some aspects of it that are hearty, I feel that comes more from personal opinion. Yeah. So, in this personal regard, and this in this objective regard, I would say I would give the locales uh, five out of five. Okay, well, awesome. And equipment. Equipment, I feel I feel for you four out of five. Four to five um, equipment. I really liked the the, the gear, this the practical scuba gear, the tank, the the pen flashlight or torch thing was kind of cool right. as well.
0: Yeah. Um, I couldn't and, I couldn't make uh, out if that was something particularly uniquely Q-, Q branch or if that was just a pen flashlight. It could have been a pen flashlight. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite
1: tell. I like the whole keel hauling idea as well, so I kind of put the paravane in in, yeah. in in that equipment category as well too. And the,
0: and the limpet mine as well.
1: The Limpet Mine was pretty cool too. Yeah, especially at that time period, that just seems like a really cool device and how he went down to, to um, you know, to
0: implant it on the uh on the keel of the ship and everything. So I mean, do you think that do you think that Limpet Mine scene uh was in any way inspired by or perhaps um drawn from his understanding of or relationships in naval intelligence? Oh, absolutely. I I, I can imagine that. Yeah, well I, yeah. I, I'm. Curious, but hey.
1: Yeah, like working like with SOS, SOSE, SOS and the OSS or whatever. Like, yeah, that's, yes. There's definitely some, you know, Agents of Shield kind of aspect to that experience that he had. So uh. he definitely appeared to have uh, um, known that was the kind of devices that you would use in that regard. Maybe went into a bit of detail about how he could conceal it on, on the on the keel of the ship where they couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And That would kind of, I think, get rid of that plot hole that you mentioned.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's a good point. Right, so let's let's add you up here, buddy. We got nine, and nine is eighteen. You, my friend, are twenty one point five at a twenty five for Little Let Die. Okay, that's a that's a very. I mean, we we've both given them very positive scores. We have. Well,
1: I I, I think the book was 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 really well done, and I think um, the
0: scores they they tell
1: that perfectly.
0: Yeah, yeah the book was well done. It was uh, it was a good one. So next on our list, then Josh, um, is Moonraker. Ah yes, yes. The third Bond novel, and I'm um, excited about this. In another month's time, we're going to be back together talking about Moonraker.
1: I think this is one thing we're going to have to talk about, though, in comparison a little bit to the adaptation, because Moonraker <laughs> is probably one of the most um,
0: infamous Bond uh, Bond films you can imagine. So yeah, we'll we'll definitely drag it up. I think, like like I said, uh, or like we said at the outset here with this project, this series we're doing on Bond and books, we're going to have an episode dedicated to adaptations at the end, just because we're going to have to pull these things in. And maybe, you know, I mean, we, we can't rag on Roger Moore's Bond. I mean, he, he is a product of his time as much as uh, the screenwriters were. And what they're trying to accomplish is very different to what Dr. and from Russia with Love are trying to accomplish, you know? So Absolutely. I, think, I think we do owe it some uh, adaptation time. But that will have to come at a at a later episode when we're all finished this thing, so how of are you course. feeling
1: I'm feeling good I think uh book two uh the series definitely um picked up more was uh, picked up and uh I'm really actually looking forward now to going into uh M- 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 moonmaker and experiencing that through a fresher uh perspective
0: yeah, and we'll see if um we'll see in our next episode if Ian Fleming leaves any of the um any of the preamble about Bond, if he trusts his characters a little more established in the third book, the second in the Jonathan Cape contract that he had, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if, um, if he does that, or if this is going to start like the other two, which is introducing the character, reminding us he's a secret agent, etc., cetera, etc., cetera.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious to see that if Fleming is is basically with Living That Die, it seemed like he just wanted to do a follow up to Casino Royale, and, and that way, mm-hmm. so he just wanted to basically kind of do a self contained story in his own way, right? Yeah. But are we going to, are we going to see kind of in the third book the the continuing signs of an emerging franchise and storyline? You know what I mean?
0: It'll be interesting to see. Any closing remarks, Josh?
1: No, um, other than the fact that. Um, this was uh It was really great breaking this book down and into the best possible way that we could, and discussing it and looking at it on its own uh, in its own uh, view, as opposed to being, as to you know the the more the more I guess well known adaptation. Uh, yeah. I just think that it was. It was. Uh, I I don't know. It's one of those things where people ask you like anything else to say when we've spoken for like three hours almost, and <laughs> it, it just kind of seems like.
0: No, of course, there's nothing more to say. But in closing, I would just like to re reiterate what we were trying to do at the beginning here, talking about the race card. That you know, we we aren't excusing or um, really encouraging any of of, of the, <clears throat> the 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 hatred towards the text because of the things that are in it. I think we did a good job of setting out the context, and I think along the way we managed to laugh at the at the um the bits that need laughed at as well as deal seriously with uh why Fleming wrote the way he did and we you know we hold him responsible for what he wrote cuz ultimately he is responsible but you know you were saying it's all down to authorial intent at the beginning and I agree with you to a certain extent but you know like Roland Barthes said the author is dead right once something goes out there into the public it it is interpreted anyway the public Wants to, which is why you have this book out of all of the Bond books inundated with criticism and hatred about the way the uh, the Black America is represented. I think I think it's only fair to Fleming to yeah, sure, whip him a little bit, but recognize the world he's writing in.
1: Exactly. Yeah, you always have to look at things in context because you know, like if we didn't want to talk about the James Bond series if we didn't want to talk about the good and the bad of the James Bond series, there's no point just doing the the, the Bond books that yeah. are, you know, that make everyone happy, you know? Like, there's always going to be something that's going to offend someone in some way. Yeah. And we can't get past these obstacles without acknowledging what happened in the past before. So no. I'm one of these people saying that the only way to prevent history from repeating is to learn the mistakes of the past. And by understanding the viewpoints of, of society, we can also see that these viewpoints, while today would be maligned, there was a reason behind them. And there was extremes where people carried this prejudice in, in a way that was not healthy and was not, uh, that was very detrimental to society. Uh, even up and up, up until today, people have these attitudes, but at this time period, there were a lot of people who felt the same way that Fleming did and they were so-called decent people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. these were our grandparents. These were our, our great uncles, you know, like uh, people that we care about. And they, they had these feelings about the world as well. And we have to understand about those aspects of a cultural that, we that they didn't have the sensitivity that we were born with, I think, you know, um, at this time period.
0: No, you're right. Um, that's an excellent way to, to, to put it. And I think that's uh, the great way to, to credit Live and Let Die. At least it, it wraps it in the proper paper. And um, this is what these discussions are all about. So good. Um, well done. Well said. I've nothing to add to that. Uh, I look forward, my friend, to meeting you back here in a month's time to talk about Moonraker. Yes. Moonraker Moonraker without Shirley Bassey unfortunately this one
1: yes without Shirley Bassey and without space just as a bit of a spoiler for those who haven't read the book
0: well not entirely without space but with space uh, but without the lasers and without the fighting and without the ridiculous metal jawed man chewing through the fuselage of a space station yeah and and, and jaws falling in love too we can't forget that right BFG it's been a blast great take care Bowman